Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Monday, November 21st, 2016. Now, this is a short broadcast week because of the Thanksgiving holiday here in the United States. And I'm, we're going to kind of change up this week's programming just a smidge. Details forthwith. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. But what if the Bible that you're reading isn't really a good translation? In other words, you have to actually compare your Bible to the Bible. That's the topic that we will be covering today on Fighting for the Faith. Now, like I said at the opening, our our program will have programs. We have three episodes this week. Uh, here in the United States on Thursday, it's Thanksgiving, and then Friday is Black Friday. And so what we're going to do is we're going to change it up just a little bit. Uh, rather than our normal programming, I'm going to, today I have an extended, very long conversation with Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley regarding the Passion Translation. And you have to put the word translation in air quotes. This is becoming the go-to Bible for those who are in the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation. And this program, I know it's long, the conversation is drawn out, but it's important. And the reason why it is important is because this translation is no translation at all. It is an absolute debacle, and I would say even demonically so. And so this is an episode, it might take you a little bit of time to work through it because of its length, but Pastor Charmley takes the time to walk us through the different facets of what exactly is wrong with this translation. And in the course of our conversation, this requires him to talk about what it is that makes a good translation, not only textually, but also linguistically. And then the impact that God's word rightly translated, correctly preached and taught has in regards to discipleship, in regards to evangelism and things like that. So this is an episode, grab yourself something to drink, sit down, make yourself comfortable, get your fuzzy bunny slippers on. It's it, it's going to be, we're going to work our way through this uh, conversation recorded earlier today with Pastor Charmley. And like I said, I understand it's, it's long, but don't let that, don't let that scare you. Take the time to 
listen to Pastor Charmley's arguments and the things that he has to say as he takes his time building up and kind of making his points. This is not a microwave episode of Fighting for the Faith. Far, far from it. Now, for tomorrow's episode, we will be listening to a good lecture from Dr. Rod Rosenblatt on an apologetics topic. And uh, although it's a, it's technically addressed to pastors, you know, how, what pastors can do to help uh, their parishioners uh, engage in evangelism and, and defend the faith, that's kind of the topic. Um, it, it It's, it's going to be a good episode, a uh, good light episode. And then on uh, Wednesday, we will end off the week with uh, a couple of my... Uh, most recent ramblings as I get into the book of Exodus. Yeah, we're going to start off, we're going to you know, head off into uh, the book of Exodus. So that will be this week's uh, programming for Fighting for the Faith. Normal episodes, you know, you know bad preaching and teaching, uh, all included, will uh, resume next week. So with that, let's get into today's topic. Uh, again, we're discussing the Passion Translation with Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley. Here we go. All right, on the line I have from uh, Bethel Evangelical Free Church in Hanley, Stoke-on-Trent in the United Kingdom. And Bethel, by the way, has no association with the Bethel in uh, Redding, California. Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley, thanks for coming on Fighting for the Faith. Thank you for having me. Now, and yes, it's very important that we have no connection at all with Bethel, Redding, California. Yeah, I'm. <laughs> I can't imagine. <laughs> I cannot imagine you being slain in the spirit or, you know, prattling on in incoherent babblings. But um, <laughs> you've been a regular feature on Fighting for the Faith for many, many years now. We've uh, featured many of your sermons. I'm a. Uh, you know, I listen to your sermons. I enjoy your your exegesis and the way you approach the text. You seem to rightly handle law and gospel, and so I appreciate uh, you coming on fighting for the faith in another role, other than you know sermonizing or even emailing in. You've been a regular emailer on our program for uh, for many years as well. And I'll remind the uh, the audience that several years ago, you put together a very nice email that we read and then posted on our, our website talking about the dangers of the message translation, if you can even call it that, message paraphrase <laughs> of the of the Bible. And, uh, and you made some compelling arguments uh, regarding, you know, the fact that it was very faulty, not faithful to what the scriptures were saying in the original languages, and that uh, uh, that people really ought not to be um, studying from the message, or and pastors especially should not be preaching from the message. Tran uh, paraphrase, and um, but now there's a there's a new translation that's on the market. I don't think it's finished yet. Uh, put out by uh, Brian Simmons. Uh, who you know, who is a fellow who has connections with the New Apostolic Reformation? We'll talk about that. And you've done some research on this. The name of it is the um, the Passion Translation, and uh, and so I know you've done some research on this. And let's talk about this. What is the uh, the the Passion Translation? Who is behind it? And then we'll get into you know their claims regarding it. Uh, you know, as a, as a translation, and then we'll uh, look at some of your analysis uh, regarding this translation to determine whether or not this is something that will benefit the body of Christ or actually be harmful to it. 
So uh, with that, tell us a little bit about the translation, who's behind it, and uh, and we'll go from there, Pastor Charmley. The Passion Translation is, uh, well, it's been, it's a new alleged Bible translation that's come out. It's being released at the moment. I think the first volumes appeared a couple of years ago, 2014. Um, It's being released piecemeal, so little paperback volumes that contain some for the bigger Bible books like the Psalms, for example, a whole book in one of these volumes for the, the shorter books, for example, Paul's epistles, and well, the shorter epistles of Paul, a number will be contained within the covers of one of these slim paperback volumes. It's been published by an organization that I'd never heard of before, Broad Street, Broad Street Publishing. And the author, the translator, and putting that in inverted commas for good reason that we'll come on to, is a man called Brian Simmons, who's described on the Passion Translation website as a former missionary, linguist, and Bible teacher. As a missionary, it goes on to say, he and his wife, Candice, pioneered church plants in Central America. As a linguist, Brian co-translated the Piacuna New Testament for the Kuna people of Panama. He and his wife have started numerous ministries, including a dynamic church, Gateway Christian Fellowship in West Haven, Connecticut. He's also a gifted teacher of the Bible, has authored several books and serves churches worldwide through his teaching ministry. So that's how he describes himself. I get the feeling that although it's in the third person, he is responsible for it. Just the vocabulary, really, and the construction sounds a lot like what he says in the Passion Translation. Okay. So, um, all right. You know, I uh, recently saw Brian Simmons on... Uh, Sid Roth's It's Supernatural, and they were talking about his translation work. And on that episode, we featured it here at Fighting for the Faith, Brian Simmons was claiming um, actual miraculous uh, intervention on the part of the Holy Spirit in giving him inspiration for the Passion Translation. Oh, yes, and that's uh, he's very much in with the NAR people. And in fact the NAR view him as an apostle. So he's actually one of these NAR apostles. And if you look at the endorsements that you have, now they read like a wanted list of NAR false teachers. You've got Bill Johnson, Cheon, Catherine Ronola, Patricia King, James Gall. These people are all saying how wonderful this is and they too were saying that this is somehow divinely inspired or divinely guided. Give one a couple of examples. Catherine Ronala saying, Brian and Candice are friends of the Holy Spirit, and it was it is with his, his being capitalized, guidance. The Bible is being opened to us with greater clarity than ever before through this translation project. Greater clarity than ever before. What a claim that is. Wow. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> anyone else uh, in the NAR endorsing this, including well Patricia King and and Bill Johnson? Oh yes. What have they yeah. said about this translation? Well, Bill Johnson, the passion translation is truly alive, constantly unveiling the heart of a loving father. It is the most exciting thing to happen in Bible translation in my lifetime. Which strikes me as a bit overblown, given how many translations have come out during Bill Johnson's lifetime. Right. Some of them pretty good translations, too. Um, Yeah, this kind of takes, you know, if you think about the implications of what's going on here, um, the, uh, the people who are in the King James only Bible camp, uh, they they claim inspiration for the uh, the King James translation of oh, the yes. Bible. They they literally do. But literally, what's happening here is that the NAR is explicitly stating, you know, uh, major leaders in the NAR are explicitly stating that this translation is is inspired by and is exciting because we're getting insights that we never had access to before, which the Holy Spirit has given to Brian Simmons. Oh, yes. Yeah, so go on. And, uh, this is Patricia King now. And reading it just on the on the screen initially, I could hear Patricia King's voice because she's been featured on Fighting for the Faith for, well, since... Yeah, since the beginning. <laughs> I lost it left off uh audio wise you you were just setting up patricia king and you, you the words out of your mouth were this was patricia king now and you had made the point that you can hear her voice as you're reading it because of you know she's been featured before so many times on fighting for the faith if we can start with that you say uh, patricia king and then make that point again and then read her endorsement we can just pick up right where we left off yes yeah patricia king and of course Patricia King has been featured on Fighting the Faith an awful lot, and you listen to her endorsement, and you can hear her voice. It's her cadence, the way she speaks. Right. And she says, The Passion Translation opens up your heart to life-giving revelation from the Word. It will impact you not only through the literal Word written, but also through the life-giving Spirit that fills it. I love the Passion Translation. use it not only for devotion, but for study. I highly recommend this inspirational work led by the Spirit and penned by Brian Simmons. And you see that phrase at the end, led by the Spirit, penned by Brian Simmons. It reminds me of the King James only writer, Gail Ripplinger, who was asked why the first edition of her book, New Age Bible Version, was it It was just G.A. Ripplinger, didn't make clear that she was a woman. And she said, well, I think of it as God and Ripplinger. God as the author, Ripplinger as the secretary. And it's the same sort of idea here that seems to be coming out is that the Holy Spirit is actually guiding the translation and Simmons is just putting pen to paper, hmm. which is very dangerous. And the King James only, yes, they have this idea, but what they're doing is they're going to an existing version that for for its time, was incredibly scholarly. And you look at the King James translators, you've got all the relevant university professors in England were working on that. Right. And none of them thought they were divinely inspired. They were just 
Bible translators doing what Bible translators do. It's something that's brought along later. But this is a, a new translation that's ongoing. And these endorsements are endorsements that Simmons himself is encouraging. Um, let me read you what uh, Che On says, which I think is possibly the worst of the lot. And they're all pretty awful. Brian Simmons is a brilliant man, says Che Arm who has been given revelation and insight into a deeper meaning of the scriptures. God has breathed a passion in Brian to see the rich words of the Bible presented to us in a new light. Reading this translation will enlighten your heart, mind, and spirit as you are summoned into the essence of the man Christ Jesus' undeniable love for you. (laughs) Wow. Um, wow. Wow. I mean, I I have a degree in biblical languages and, you know, I work in the Greek text and in the Hebrew text, and I would never claim for my translations that they're inspired. Um, you know, I, I strive very hard to be accurate. And sometimes there's certain passages that, you know, as you're working through a sentence that are very difficult to pull over into English (laughs) Because uh, finding an English equivalent to what's going on in the original languages is a little bit difficult, but oh yeah, but somehow saying that you, you, that if I were to say, but I've received a special gift from the Holy Spirit to be able to translate. I'm gonna, and my translation will reflect divine insights given to me via direct revelation or being carried along by the Spirit as I'm translating. That's a horse of a different color. Oh, yes, very much. And in explaining the reason why on the Frequently Asked Questions page of the Passion Translation website, the question is asked, and of course it's a very important one, why another Bible translation? I mean, how many English Bible translations are there? Yeah. The answer is too many. And... uh, I can think of no reason why we need to have, what, about three dozen, I think, on the market at the moment. I may be exaggerating very, very slightly, but certainly over two dozen. And we don't need that many. So why another one? Well, this is what Simmons says. Many wonderful versions of the Bible grace our bookshelves, bookstores, software programs, even apps on our phones. In fact, 88% of households, talking about the United States, of course, own an average of nearly five Bibles. So why add one more? Good question. The reason, he answers, is simple. God wants his message of love to be received in every culture, every community, and every language. You ask, what? what's he talking about? About every hundred years or so, he goes on to say, the vocabulary of people undergoes a dramatic change. In this era of modern technology, we find an even more rapid shift. Therefore, it is important to keep translations of the Bible in step with changes in the English language. That's where the Passion Translation comes in. The Passion Translation is an attempt to bring God's fiery heart of love and truth to this generation using Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic manuscripts, bringing them together with the emotion and truth of God's word, resulting in a clear, accurate, readable translation of modern English readers. In past translations, wonderfully gifted scholars were trained to focus on other factors besides the emotion of the text. 
as Brian has studied the original biblical manuscript, he has uncovered what he believes is the love language of God that has been missing from other translations. God, wait, wait, the what? The <laughs> the love language. That's what he says. That's what I, he said. I never studied that when I got my degree in biblical languages. I, I understand Hebrew. I understand Greek. I never understood. I ne- was never taught the love language. Uh, wow. Well, apparently, well, it's been missing from all other translations, you see. Ah. And again, he goes on in this answer. God refuses to meet us only in an intellectual way. God also wants to meet us heart level. So we must let the words go heart deep, which is what we're trying to do with this project, to bring words that go right through the human soul, past the defences of our mind, and go right into our spirit. There's a language of the heart that must express the passion of this love theology. That's why the Passion Translation is an important addition to people's devotional and spiritual life with Christ. So this translation is designed to help you help the Bible bypass your brain and just go straight to your heart? Apparently so. Apparently so. Quite how words are supposed to have any effect whatsoever on us apart from being comprehended by the the mind escapes me. But what do I know? I'm a middle-aged Englishman. Emotion isn't what middle-aged Englishmen do very well. Right. So if I'm understanding what they're saying here, that uh, so God has given them insight into a totally different language, the love language of God. And and the whole goal is to give you a translation that could keep your mind disengaged and go straight to your heart. Well, it's it's very, very hard to understand exactly what he's saying. That's the trouble. It's it's this sort of jargon filled uh, babble. A fiery heart of love, love language, a heart deep, yeah, etc., etc., etc. And it becomes very difficult to understand really what he means at all. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the quest, the question is asked again on the website. What kind of translation is the Passion Translation? How does it compare with other translations? Again, it's a good question. No, I don't pretend to have every English translation of the Bible in my library. I've got about a dozen. Uh-huh. Goes all, all the way back to Wycliffe, yeah, pre-Reformation, all the way to the present day. Um, there's an awful lot out there. So he answers this question, how does it compare with other translations? He says, well, you may have heard about two kinds of Bible translations, formal equivalents and functional equivalents. Yes. Those are fancy words for Bibles. Formal equivalents is something like the ESV, the King James, New King James, etc. Where you're trying to be as close as possible to the original words. So you have something, I remember when I was studying Greek at seminary, our Greek tutor said uh, before you graduate, get a new American standard, and when you do your translation, if your translation looks a lot like the new American standard, then it, it's in the ballpark. Yep. It's close. The NASB is almost woodenly literal. And I'm not so sure about the almost, but it's very, very literal. 
Yep. Other versions, of course, you've got the the NIV. I and mean, when I was a, a student, which is uh, I graduated my um, bachelor's of science at what's now Chester University in England. It's it was then a college of Liverpool University, but what's now Chester University. I graduated uh, two thousand one, and of course the the big translation. 2000 before that was the NIV and the NIV is what they call functional equivalence or dynamic equivalence and the idea is well we need to get the meaning across more so we'll do a bit more interpretation of course the problem with that as we know is that you can do too much interpretation but again the people behind the NIV they're trying to accurately convey what's being said the corresponding function so the idea that it has the same effect mm-hmm. because you've got uh, uh, idioms and this sort of thing i remember when i was at uh, seminary i studied at a seminary where we had as oh, i think all the english seminaries we have international students so you had folk who english was a second language and i really it's bad enough learning hebrew the medium of your first language english i can't imagine learning hebrew through the medium of a second language that must be tough right but well except for the one fellow we had who came from syria and aramaic was sort of his parents language he had an advantage over the rest of us but you know you're talking to these foreign students and being english we'd use english idioms all the time so they'd say well what do you think of so and so and we and i'd reply well off the top of my head and they said look what <laughs> yeah right yeah off the top of my head means uh, without any forethought or previous working consideration on this this is what i think so idioms don't always carry over into other languages right and that's the sort of thing that the more dynamic equivalence versions to deal with. But the question then is asked, well, okay, what, which of these two sides does the passion translation take? And Simmons really should have said at this point, well, because meaning is important and because meaning is what really we need to convey, then we tend to a more sort of dynamic and paraphrastic approach. What he actually says is, in many ways, both. While we've worked hard to express the original biblical language in modern English, we believe there really is no such thing as a consistent word-for-word translation. Yes, literal meaning matters, but the full meaning of a passage doesn't transfer from word to word. Our translation and philosophy is that the meaning of God's original message to the world has priority over its exact form which is why our goal is to communicate the meaning of Scripture as clearly and naturally as possible in modern English. Well, I read that and I go, well, isn't that what the NIV is trying to do? Isn't that what, isn't that a dynamic or functional equivalence approach? Right. So how, how is this, well, in many ways both? But actually, it's not even that. It is this incredibly paraphrastic, incredibly free version. And again, I must read the last sentence of that section that answer in the frequently asked questions by and other reviewers have sought to remain faithful to the original biblical languages by preserving their literal meaning yet flexible enough 
to convey God's original message in a way modern English speakers can understand is a balanced translation. No, it's not. But it is a balanced translation, they claim, that tries to hold both the word's literal meaning and its original message in proper tension, resulting in an entirely new, fresh, fiery translation of God's word. It led me to think that which fire? Yeah. Good sort or the bad sort? And I'm afraid it's the bad sort. Okay. So... (laughs) I, I think you have an opinion on this. I, it's clearly co- yes. coming through, even in your introductory thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, all right, can you give us some salient examples? That, I mean, that somebody could easily grasp as to an, you know, that somehow this new translation, although claiming for itself inspiration from the Holy Spirit and the ability to translate God's love language is falling woefully short of uh, of what the Bible actually says in the original languages as conveyed in English. Yes, now, full disclosure is important. I haven't read the whole thing. I say it hasn't been finished yet. What I have done is I've read one of the volumes entitled Letters from Heaven by the Apostle Paul, which contains Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and First uh, and Second Timothy. I reckon, first of all, Paul is difficult. Yep. Now, the Apostle Peter himself says that in Paul's writings, there are some things that are hard to understand, which the unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, to their own destruction. That's Second Peter 3.16. So if you want to get down into it, I did the same thing with the message. If you want to get down into it, and into you know, where the rubber meets the road, what do they make of Paul? And there are all kinds of issues, really, when you look at it. The first thing is it's it's an expansive paraphrase. Now, when we talk about expansive paraphrase, we're looking at a work that puts the the words of the Bible into the translator's own language. Probably, and you remember this, the, one of the, the best known of the early sort of evangelical paraphrases would be the living Bible yep. paraphrased. And uh, um, the paraphrased there is um, Taylor, and he says in his uh, introduction... To paraphrase is to say something in different words than the author used. It's a restatement of an author's thoughts using different words than he did. This book, he says, of the Living Bible, is a paraphrase of the Old and New Testaments. Its purpose is to say as exactly as possible what the writer of the scripture meant, and to say it simply, expanding where necessary for a clear understanding by the modern reader. And that's a paraphrase. Paraphrases have their place. There have been sort of these paraphrases around for, well, almost as long as the Bible's been around. Um, Codex Bezai Catabrigensis is a, a famous one. Fifth century, Theodore Beyser, Calvin's successor at Geneva, gave it to Cambridge University and commented really that it was an oddity. And it is. It's, it's weird. It's been described by Dr. James White as the living Bible of the ancient world. And so these things have been around for a long time. But what's happened with the message, and much more so with 
the Passion Translation is that they've become freer and freer and freer. And they've treated the Bible more and more in a uh, cavalier fashion and expanding, in some cases, simply for the the sake of uh, expansion, I think, just because they can, Mm. resulting in whole sentences that have absolutely no explanatory value whatsoever being added. So, example, now I... I edit a magazine for a little Christian organization called the Sovereign Grace Union. I've written an article on the Passion Translation for them. And the SGU, we use the the King James or the authorized version as the, the main translation of the text. Um, so I, I'll be quoting from the AV and then giving a Passion Translation version. So, example, Colossians 3.18 in the AV, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Straightforward, easy, simple. Mm-hmm. Do you actually need to say any more? No. But the Passion Translation says here, let every wife be supportive and tenderly devoted to her husband, for this is a beautiful illustration of our devotion to Christ. Uh, what? Yeah. <laughs> There are other issues as to why it says that, but the idea of the wife's love to her husband being an example of of love to Christ is just simply brought in from Ephesians. It's biblical, it's true, it's not in Colossians 3.18. Right. And again, a few, a little bit later on, verse 24, I'd say, in fact, this is so bad, the Passion Translation, that you could just illustrate everything wrong with it from Colossians chapter 3. Wow. You don't have to go anywhere else. I will go to other places. There are other places that illustrate further, but you can illustrate everything just by going to Colossians chapter 3. So Colossians 3.24. Again, the AV, knowing that of the Lord you you shall receive the reward of the inheritance for ye serve the Lord Christ. Hey, apart from the um, archaic language, ye, it's, and we know what ye means really, it's pretty obvious, it's straightforward. You shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Passion translation, for we know that we will receive a reward, an inheritance of kingdom authority from the Lord, Whoa. as we serve the Lord Yahweh, the anointed one. A reward oh. of kingdom authority? What is that? Yep. Well, I think I have, and I think you have as well, a, some idea what that means in numerous apostolic reformation speak, but it's not in the text. And you note another thing here, that you've got the anointed one, and it's it's odd that there's this confusing sort of variety in translating Christos in the the Passion Translation. Sometimes it's rendered Christ, sometimes Messiah, sometimes Anointed One, which tends to rather obscure what's being said. I mean, yes, good English. Good English style means that you use synonyms where possible. English, where you just use the same 
word over and over again is dull and repetitive. That's not how English works. But a technical term like Christ should be translated the same way every time because it's technical. Mm-hmm. And yet that isn't done. And you, yes, you see, you have this. And again, the Lord Yahweh. Now, you and I know that Yahweh is at one transliteration of the Tetragrammaton mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. It doesn't appear in the New Testament. Um, at the same time, yes, Lord, as used of Christ, Kurios, is, is, does have the force very often of Yahweh in the Old Testament. But at the same time, why slot it in here? It's odd, really. Right, and there's actually Christological implications by mm. by putting it into verse 24. Mm. No, knowing that from Yahweh you will receive, and then it goes on, you are serving the anointed mm. one. Mm. I mean, that starts to, that actually begins to drive a wedge between Yahweh and Christ in a way that the text doesn't warrant at all. In fact, yes. it, it, you're starting to, you, you, you could easily set this up as a translation that would support the Arian heresy or begin to drive a wedge in good Trinitarian theology. If you wanted to, I don't think he does. I mean, he's a MAR person, but another example would be Colossians 3.15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you are also called in one body, and be thankful. Mm-hmm. And straightforward. Passion translation, let your heart be always guided by the peace of the anointed one who has called you to peace as part of his body and always be thankful, overflowing with gratitude for your life union with Christ. And does that add anything? Does that explain the text? No. And more clearly, I don't think it does. Um, perhaps a, a, an example where actually the, the Passion translation is less clear than the original, and there's an awful lot like that, but Colossians 3.14, and above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, which is the New King James, which is the the text I usually preach from, you would have noticed, uh, at at the Bethel. That's the the text that the Bethel uses. Mm -hmm. And put on love, which is the bond of perfection. The Passion Translation says, for love is supreme and must flow through all these virtues. Love becomes the mark of true maturity. Now, this idea of love having to flow through all these virtues is just slotted into the text without any warrant. And the idea that this image that Paul has of love being a bond, that you, something that unites, is just removed. You know, I, I got to tell you, um, years and years ago, I you know I actually got my start in Christian apologetics, um, doing ministry to Jehovah's Witnesses and helping to uh, get them out from under the thumb and the rule of the uh, Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. And it took a little bit of skill and you know and time to learn how to use their own translation, which they trusted, which is called the New World Translation, to begin to create doubt that the uh, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society is is actually 
of God. But one of the things I found, you know, found interesting and in, in, is that the, the New World Translation specifically, I think, was created so that the Jehovah's Witnesses would not have to read an English translation mm. that kept contradicting their false doctrines, especially regarding Christ. Oh yes, and, and so yep. you, you look in, in the Jehovah's Witnesses. They 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 are purveyors of the ancient heresy known as the Arian heresy. And, oh yes, and they deny that Christ, they deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They mm-hmm. deny that Jesus is God in human flesh. They say he's a godlike creature, and they mm-hmm. even go on to say that he's uh, you know he's probably Michael the Archangel incarnate, mm-hmm. but not but not God, not the Son of oh, God. Oh yes, he's yeah, he's a God, as they say in right. uh, that translation of. John's Gospel, Chapter 1. Right. Yes, we have a, a couple of folk at the church that I pastor who are former JWs. Uh-huh. Um, and the, the JWs are quite active in, in this city. It's funny, if, um, a friend of mine is a minister whose church is neck, well, practically next door to the Kingdom Hall yeah. in, in Bradley, Stoke-on-Trent. And a couple of years ago, they had a couple went into Emmanuel Evangelical Church by mistake, which, mm-hmm. of course, Alan, my friend, was very, very pleased with. Yes. <laughs> These folk who were JWs going to the church and hear the gospel, brilliant, that's what you want. Yeah. Want. Um, but yes, they were given this translation, the New World Translation, it was commissioned, of course, but it came out about 1950. And yeah. the idea was to slot in to a, a version of the Bible the... JW theology and yes. the idea particularly of the of Christ being a creature. So you find in, in Colossians, instead of saying that all things were made through him, it's all other things. Yes. Yep. Um the other, of course, has absolutely no antecedent in the Greek text. And we find the same thing in terms of inserting new apostolic or reformation theology into the Bible in um, the Passion Translation. Let me give you an example. Colossians 3.13, the New King James says, uh, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a quarrel against anyone else, even as Christ has forgiven you, so you forgive one another. The Passion Translation, on the other hand, Tolerate the weaknesses of those in the family of faith, forgiving one another in the same way you have been graciously forgiven by Jesus Christ. If you find fault with someone, release the same gift of forgiveness to them. Releasing a gift. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so, wow. So they literally, I think this translation is designed to basically create the false impression that the Bible teaches their false doctrines. And uh, and modern translations that are actually good translations, are, it's more difficult to do that. Since oh, yes. They don't teach these things, and you can actually yep. un, you can unwind them using mm. a good translation. But if they, yep. if they are studying this translation, they're going to believe that this is actually what God's Word says – when it doesn't, oh, yes. they've literally added stuff into the text mm. that isn't there. And the, these are their unique NAR doctrines. Mm. Let me give you another example. Colossians 3.16. Now, this is a, a decent translation here, the New King James. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. 
The Passion Translation renders this as, let the word of Christ live in you richly, flooding you with all wisdom. Apply the scriptures as you teach and instruct one another with the Psalms and with festive praises and with prophetic song given to you spontaneously by the Spirit as the fountain of grace overflows within you. Sing songs to God with all your heart. And it's this idea of the Holy Spirit spontaneously giving prophetic songs to people that's slotted in the text. Yes. Wow. Someone might want to argue, well, spiritual songs means that, but that's an interpretation, uh-huh. and that doesn't belong in a translation. But it's put in there, and so, well, this is obviously what the text means, and you add to that this idea of divine revelation coming to Simmons, uh-huh. and, well, this must, this is what the Holy Spirit says the text means. Well, it's not. It's just it's one man's idea. It's one movement's idea. Um, And you find, again, the idea of prophesying over people, prophesying over people, which is a a term you hear again and again. And um, in Ephesians 6.22, the phrase that he might encourage your hearts or comfort your hearts becomes and he will also prophesy over you to encourage your hearts. Well, he will encourage your hearts is what the text says. And this phrase, he will prof- and this phrase prophesy over you is just slotted in with no reason whatsoever, except that's their theology. Right. That's their theology. And it, say it, it means that, well, obviously this is what the Bible says, isn't it? Well, no, it's not. Well, and see, that kind of just begs the question. They're claiming an inspired translation, but the thing Mm. is, is that we understand that the original text of Colossians 3 is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit meant to say these things, why didn't he say them when he had Paul pen them? Well, exactly. Now, one of the words that you mention again and again and comes again and again in these modern not just the new historic reformation but a lot of this modern teaching is this word destiny mm-hmm. now you look at a decent bible translation you put it in um your bible program or you whip out i'm an old-fashioned sort of man i i have a, a 1930s cruden's complete concordance that belonged to my grandmother which i use and you you leaf through the pages of that and you come to the letter D in the English Bible and look under destiny. And what do you find? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> right. It's not there. The word destiny is just this idea of a special destiny. It's just something that the Bible doesn't teach. It's nope. kind of it's like these folk think of themselves and they encourage their listeners and readers to think of themselves as like the the heroes in some work of fiction of fantasy fiction they have a destiny to perform a special destiny that lies upon them but that's not in the bible but you take ephesians 1 11 in decent translation um Again, New King James, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his own will. 
Now, the Passion Translation says, This is why God selected and ordained us to be his own inheritance through our union with Christ. Before we were even born, he gave us our destiny, that we would fulfill the plan of God, who always accomplishes every plan and purpose in his heart. Now, being predestined is not the same as no. destiny. <laughs> not even the idea of predestined is more... It's the idea of a destination. Uh This is where you are going. It's not the same as a destiny, which is this thing that you must accomplish um, as the the chosen one or whatever. Wow. Yeah, and and you you cannot translate the Greek word uh, prorizo is to you know, having a destiny. It it means no. literally to decide ahead of time. I mean, yes. Greek is you know pro is beforehand. Uh, it, you know, orizo to decide. You know, <laughs> this is not this. You cannot do this. No, you can't. <laughs> you can't do this with Greek. Mm. Wow. But the the effort is made again. Um, the other thing with this is that some of these expansions, he is very very prone to ex expansion in the readings okay so um I, I did some word counts with some of his translations comparing them with a with the authorized version of king james for this article writing for our magazine of the sgu and the av translation of colossians 316 has 33 words 33 words okay the passion translation 57 Ephesians 1.11, 27 words in the AV, 46 in the Passion Translation. Whoa. But the absolute worst example of this in many, many ways, but the absolute worst that I found anyway, and I obviously I've only read a small part of this, um, is in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit, this again is... A good translation, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, or self-control. Against such there is no law. Right. That's A.V. Simmons. But the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit within you is divine love in all its various expressions. This love is revealed through joy that overflows, peace that subdues, patience that endures, Kindness in action, a life full of virtue, faith that prevails, gentleness of heart and strength of spirit. Never set the law above these qualities, for they are meant to be limitless. Now, there are 22 words in the AV, 23 if you take the New King James, where um, temperance is self-control. Right. Care to make a, a ballpark estimate of how many there are in the Passion Translation? 70, 80? 64. Close, yeah, wow. Which is almost three times as long. Yeah. And does it add anything to the text? No, it actually takes away from the text. Because instead of going with what God actually said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Instead, it's the fruit produced by the Holy Spirit. Then you is divine love in all its various expressions. This love is revealed through. Well, that's not what the Holy Spirit gave Paul to say. That's not what Paul, writing, carried along by the Holy Spirit, said. Paul says that the fruit, singular fruit, is 
all these things together. That is a full-orbed Christian character. Right. Full-orbed Christian character. But Simmons doesn't get this. He doesn't understand this. No doubt he has suffered from a problem that you'll find that quite a lot of evangelicals have of thinking that it's fruit in the plural, but it's fruit in the singular. So it's not that some people have this fruit and others have that fruit. It's not, you know, you have a, a fruit garden or garden where there's fruit. My mother lives in a old farmhouse in Norfolk in England. And in her garden, you'll find there's apple trees, there's pear trees, there's strawberries growing, there's raspberries growing, all these different fruits growing in the various parts of this great big garden. And some people think, well, that's what Paul's idea is. The church is like this fruit garden and all these various different fruits are being grown in the garden. But then what he's saying is that the singular fruit is this Christian character that is characterized by all these qualities right but simmons has missed this and instead is well the fruit must be one of these things and all the others then are explanatory but of course because he's inspired by the holy spirit so he imagines well then what he's saying this is what the spirit says to the apostle simmons right right there's your problem (laughs) yeah there's your problem and you see, he expands these passages enormously, but the expansion doesn't explain things. It's interesting. Last year, um, a friend of mine gave me a, a volume by um, Colin Urquhart, who's a, an English charismatic. Colin Urquhart, The Truth New Testament, is his translation. And Colin Urquhart is much more like the a traditional paraphrase where it's original explanation. It's not this sort of, well, let's mash everything together. I mean, Urquhart's got his own problems, but here's a a comparison. Galatians 6.1, Brothers, if someone yields to sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Be careful in case you also attempt it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a sober, straightforward translation. Yep. Compare and contrast what the Passion Translation says on that. Um, Galatians 6 1, my beloved friends, if you see a believer who is overtaken with a fault and has fallen from a place of victory, may the one who overflows with the Spirit seek to restore him to fellowship with the Anointed One. Win him over with gentle words which will open his heart to you and will keep you from exalting yourself over him. Wow. And has fallen from a place of victory, of course, has absolutely no antecedent in the text. It's a charismatic uh, buzz phrase, if you will. I think it goes back to the, the higher life movement of the late 19th century, that you have this the victorious Christian life, and then you can fall from that. I mean, obviously you were in the, the Nazarenes for a while, and yeah. that's the sort of, sort of thing the Nazarenes are into, the higher life teaching. But this, I mean, it's slotted into the text like that, this idea that just isn't there. 
So this is this is really nothing more than eisegesis. They're reading oh, in, yeah. they're reading into the biblical texts their own doctrine and theology and claiming inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the warrant for their additions to the text. Yes. And of course the problem with believing that you're inspired by the Holy Spirit is it means that you're or guided by the Holy Spirit directly means that you you don't have the sort of self-critical attitude that you ought to have. I mean, it's not like you or I, we would open the, the text and we would go through the text uh, and say, well, translate this word, this sentence, etc. Have I got it right? And we'd ask the question, have I got it right? Right. But if you think you're divinely guided, well, of course you've got it right. Right. Whatever pops into your head, you think that's the Holy yeah. Spirit. Of course, that's the right way of understanding it. Yes. Yeah, so, and, and so uh, we all come to any text that we meet with presuppositions. Um, give you one example with an uninspired text is Charles Wesley. I'm, uh, although I'm a, a pastor in a Reformed Baptist church, really, I mean, we're not a Reformed Baptist church, but we are basically a Reformed Baptist church. So. Calvinistic church, uh-huh. but although I have this sort of Calvinistic background, I I love Charles Wesley's hymns. They are wonderful. Um, and Charles Wesley was an Arminian. Yeah, there's absolutely no doubt about Charles Wesley's theology. Mm-hmm. He makes it entirely clear. And one of the the greatest hymns of Charles Wesley, I I had this sort of Anglican background, so I was brought up in a middle of the road Anglican church. It wasn't evangelical. It wasn't very very liberal, but it wasn't Anglo-Catholic, it was sort of middle-of-the-road Anglican. Um, I used the Book of Common Prayer and wonderful stuff in the BCP, um, Book of Common Prayer. But anyway, brought up in this church and we had a little hymn book called Songs of Praise, a little blue hymn book that was edited by a, a liberal Anglo-Catholic. But there's a lot of really bad hymns in there. So we tended to sing the older hymns in the book, the 18th century hymns. Charles Wesley, um, Isaac Watts, um, some of the great German hymns, uh, Mighty Fortress is Our God, these great German hymns in English translation. Mm -hmm. But one of the ones that we sang a lot and I really love is Charles Wesley, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for favoured sinners slain. Now, Certain modern Lutherans, um, and I'm thinking of the Missouri Synod when they did their recent hymn book, mm-hmm. their editor seemed to look at the text and said, well, once for favoured sinners slain sounds like Calvinism. It can't be. It's Charles Wesley. He's an Arminian. <laughs> and so the Missouri Synod editors change it to once for every sinner slain. Now, Charles Wesley would say, amen, I agree with that, but that's not what I wrote. Right. Charles Wesley's emphasis, the reason he's saying once for favoured sinners slain is that he's thinking of the fact that as sinners we are favoured by the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the idea. He's not thinking about the extent of the atonement at all. He does in other hymns. Um, Spirit of Faith Come Down is one of his hymns, which contains the lie and who did for every who has for every sinner died has surely died for me. 
But when he wrote, Lo, he comes, for once for favoured sinners slain, he was thinking about the, the great favour that God has shed abroad on his people. Now, that's an uninspired text. Right. The Missouri Synod translator there, his own lenses, his own spectacles have something on them. Now, to give a, an example, an illustration of this, I don't know if you know the Tintin books. No. The, uh, well, they're, they're, it's a Belgian, um, Belgian comic book by Hergé. And it's the adventures of this teenage uh, um, journalist who goes through various, various things. And one of the books involves a shooting star, an asteroid, part of an asteroid comes to Earth. And in the early part of the book, this asteroid is coming closer and closer to the Earth. And it's about... An, Things are getting hotter and hotter. It's having effects on the Earth's climate. Um, and this uh, Tintin goes to this observatory and looks through a, a telescope at the approaching asteroid. And he's horrified. It's a giant spider. Because it's not a giant spider. There's a spider sitting on the end of the telescope. <laughs> but this giant spider headed for Earth. And then it's the spider comes down, oh, it's just a spider. And um, Well, it's like that. You, you've got something stuck on the end of your telescope, and so everything you see is affected by the, the thing on the end of the telescope. Right. So the Missouri Synod editor has something of a bee in his bonnet about Calvinism, and so he reads this text, oh, it's Calvinism, but it's not. Um, and again, you can have this coming to the Bible, you have your theology that you haven't got from the Bible, and you come to it with your theology, and, oh, well, it says this. And you can either do as certain certain people do from the Arminian uh, free will set up, and they say, well, free will must be in the Bible. Or you do it the other way. You have a theology, and you're looking for it in the Bible. Yep. Uh, and th- this is the approach that a sort of traditional Roman Catholic would have coming to the Bible is you're looking for proof texts. So we get our theology, said the traditional Roman Catholic, from the church. Mother Church tells us a theology. And then we go to the Bible with this theology the church has given, and we look at the Bible through the teachings of the magisterium. Right. And it's, that's what's going on here, of course. It goes on with these bad Bible translations. People come come along and, well, this is my theology. This is what I think the Bible says. This is what I think is the truth. Therefore, it must be in the Bible somewhere. And if you think that you're inspired, then you'll see it places where it's not. And your eisegesis then becomes rather than just your eisegesis because you're looking. I mean, it's rather like the individual who sees free will in whosoever will let him come Mm -hmm. well the question actually there is whosoever isn't a a word on its own it's a context whoever is willing let him come well who is willing and that's another question Mm -hmm. and here you've got these people coming along with this theology and they're saying well Better change this, better change that. Now, that's one of the problems. And and what this also means is that someone will come along, and let's say you're a a pastor and you've been 
encouraged to get this and you're preaching from it, even as people do when they preach from the message. Mm-hmm. Well, what you're doing is you're preaching from a translation of, of an interpretation of an interpretation because the translation is an interpretation. So you, when we preach the gospel, when we preach the Bible, we come to the text and we preach. And our preaching is an interpretation of the text. Yep. We try to be as faithful as possible. Now, the Passion Translation and these paraphrases, they are themselves an interpretation on the same sort of level as preaching. Yeah. And so you come along and you interpret then the interpretation. Well, you're another step removed. It's rather like the old-fashioned you know, pre-Vatican II Roman Catholic insistence that the, the Latin Vulgate was the authentic Bible. So you've got, uh, for example, the, the Douay Reims translation, mm-hmm. which is the old Roman Catholic translation. And the Douay Reims is a translation of the Latin. Well, what this means is because translation always involves a small amount of interpretation, however accurate it is. And Jerome did a pretty good job yeah. of the Latin Vulgate. But you then translate Jerome into another language and you get a sort of you have a loss of meaning and you may have an addition of meaning. Yes. And one of the best ways to see this in the English language in terms of other translations, give me a second, I just pull out my book of common prayer. While Jerome did most of his translation from the original um, Hebrew in the Old Testament, he did a version of the Book of Psalms initially from the Greek. From the Septuagint. Yeah, from the Septuagint. And therefore, there's a version of the Psalms that Jerome rendered from the Greek into Latin. And of course, it's Hebrew to Greek to Latin. Mm -hmm. Now, during the English Reformation... The great English Bible translator was William Tyndale. But William Tyndale, as we all know, was martyred before he could finish his translation of the Old Testament. Yep. This, this led to a bit of a problem because there was nobody able to take his place with the same sort of skill at the time. So what happened was Miles Coverdale, who was his assistant, took over, but Miles Coverdale didn't know Hebrew. So, and he didn't know Greek either. He was, and he was a secretary, basically. Tyndale was the great scholar, but Coverdale, being a man with a, a decent education, he knew Latin. And so you have these people saying in England, well, we need a new English translation of the Old Testament. How can we finish what Tyndale was killed before he started? And so they got Coverdale to translate the Psalms, but Coverdale did it from Jerome's Latin translation of the Greek. Oh, wow. So you've got, and this is in the Book of Common Prayer, which is what I grew up using, and you find this, an obvious example of how it uh, expands, is Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the heathen so furiously rage together? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? And you can see where you can see that that is coming from the original, but going through the process, 
some extra ideas furiously raging together has uh, um, come in. And you find that's what happens if you have a translation of a translation of a translation. And that's why when we preach the Bible, we're working from the original texts and you're reading. And I think it's very important we read the Holy Scriptures in the congregation. We're reading from a a primary translation coming directly and trying to be as close as possible to the original text. All right, we've gone a little bit long without a break. We're going to pause right there and pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My mail address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of my conversation with Pastor Jervis Nicholas Edward Charmley on the Passion Translation. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Deep in the Australian wilderness, and also the typhoid infested waters of the Bongo River, Captain Worthington and his ragtag group of men have found themselves to be hopelessly lost. Surrounded by the vicious savages of the Hamuku tribe, and now the TP has run out. It's been 27 days without food, and Private Jenkins doesn't care. Oh, do shut up, Nigel! We don't need you narrating every little thing that goes on. It's bad enough already. We don't need you reminding everyone about it. Sorry. Now, gentlemen, the hour is dying. There's not much hope of us getting out of this predicament with our lives or sanity. What are we going to do, Captain? Well, we can do one of two things. We can either die in a blaze of glory, charging the Hibuku tribe in battle, or sit on the riverbank saying to ourselves, Oh, mommy, mommy, please make the bad people go away. I vote for the second one. Shut the noise, you pansy! Now, Captain, I have an idea that might just save our hides from the impending doom on the other side of the tree line. Well, out with it, man. Out with it. I happen to have... In my possession, a copy of Zondervan's latest book, The Grimoire of Modern Prayer. Well, that's excellent news. We have TP again. Huzzah! Woo-hoo. No, no, no. We're not using it for that. Then what exactly are we using it for? Uh, It says this. With this volume, you can command and control the very will of God with relative ease. Uh Are you sure we can do that? Well, the, the book says we can. Is there any proof? 
Well, Stephen Furtick did write the introduction where he explains how it's changed his life. Well, um, how does it work? Simple. We can choose from any one of these prayers. Captain Worthington, a book approaching! Blasted! Perkins, get your act together and start reading from that book. It's our only chance. I don't know which one to read first. Uh, Which ones do you have to choose from? Well, there's the uh, Scenting Prayer, the Circle Maker Prayer, the Prayer of Jabez. The, The Circle one. Let's go with that one. Okay, the book says to draw a circle around what you're praying for. Well, that's us. Quick, men, draw a circle in the dirt around us. Step two, begin to pray for whatever it is that you're in need of. I really want a Ferrari. A Ferrari. You nitwit, we need protection. Now pray, audaciously. Oh, Lord, we are not going to leave this circle until you rescue us from our enemies. Amen. Thank God, Nigel! Are you sure? Pretty sure. Unless he can breathe without his head being attached to his neck. Oh, dear. Well, there goes our narrator. What are we going to do, sir? Well, the circle prayer didn't work, so let's try something else. Packins! Working on it, sir. I, I think I got it. <laughs> I, I don't believe it, sir. The Hubuku the, Drive didn't have catapults. Jumping Jehoshaphat. This next prayer had better work, Perkins. This one will work. It's the uh, it's a Sun Sandstone prayer. What good will that do? It's in the middle of the night. It doesn't matter what you think. This is sure to work. We just have to have audacious enough faith to ask God for the impossible. You heard the man. Get praying. I still want a Ferrari, a pet raptor, no debts. Ooh, and better sex. You're just not getting this, are you? Captain, they now have cannons! Well, this is impossible! And that, children, is where I'll stop for tonight. Aw, Mom! It was just getting good! Aw, won't you please... Please tell us more. I can't tell you any more tonight. It's past your bedtime, and tomorrow is a school day. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. 
We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that the Passion Translation isn't a translation. Instead, that it is a propaganda piece for the indoctrination into false theology from the NAR. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. In our crew, That's right. Your rank is based upon your monthly commitment. And the uh, lowest rank in our crew is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of my very long conversation with Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley as we unpack all of the different facets of what is really wrong with the so-called passion translation. It's not really a translation. That's the problem. Here we go. Now, one of the problems with Simmons, and the same is true of Eugene Peterson, same is true of Taylor with the the Living Bible, is that it's a one-man work. Now, you can find men. You have, there have been men in history. I've mentioned Tyndale. Martin Luther is a great example. Or William Morgan, who was the translator of the Welsh Bible. These men are very unusual. They were men who were incredibly passionate about the original translation. They were men who had been mastered by the Bible. The Bible had sort of taken possession of them. Right. They were striving as much as possible to find their way into the meaning of the text that was before them. They were remarkable men. They were remarkable men. The, um, there's a reason why every English Bible since the 16th century has been, or every major one, has been a, a committee-written version. And it's that committees, act, the people in committees act as a check on one another. Yeah. 
so that nobody can, can put their hobby horses into the text. I think of the, the revised version, which is really the, the Bible that sparked off the whole modern Bible um, movement and the modern Bible translation. Now, the RV is, as a modern version go, it's not good. First of all, the translators decided to render it not into modern English, but into Elizabethan English. There's a there's a, a really sort of antiquarian movement in the late 19th century into the early 20th century, where people would build houses that were intend and churches that were intended to look like the past, and a, a fairly derogatory term was introduced, Jacobethan. <laughs> it was a mashup of Elizabethan and Jacobean, Jacobean being the period that follows the Elizabethan period of English history. And that's what the, the revised version was. It was in Jacobethan. It even introduced some archaic words that nobody used anymore that the King James didn't use. Wow. It was, but when they were doing it, they brought in a lot of scholars, and these scholars, they had all kinds of backgrounds. There were Anglicans, it originally started in the Anglican Church, so there were people like Westcott and Hort in there, the Anglicans. There were Presbyterians. They went north of the border and said to the Scots Presbyterians, um, can you send us your best men? And they did. They went to the Wesleyans, the Methodists, and they said to the Wesleyan Methodists, the Wesleyans being the, the most scholarly Methodists at the time, they said, well, can you send us your men? And they went to the primitive Methodists who had a, a college, and they said, can you send us your men? And so all these different denominations. And one of the men who arrived was a Welsh Unitarian called Vance Smith. Now, he was a Unitarian. He denied the deity of Christ. He was, a, to use a technical term, a Socinian. He said, Jesus Christ is just a man. Yep. Nothing more. Mm-hmm. Um, now, but Vance Smith was one man. And you look at the, the revised version and you find that he, in spite of what the King James Ennis will tell you, it doesn't denigrate the deity of Christ at all. Um, so, obvious one, Romans chapter 9. Just double check, I've got the right reference. I'm mathematically dyslexic, they tell me. I get numbers the wrong way around, which can be great fun when you're putting the numbers up in the church for the hymns. <laughs> um, I can tell you that. Um, but, uh, yes, Romans 9, 5. Um, it's speaking about the Jews. All of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. That's the New King James, the revised version, who is God over all forever blessed. Amen. So you've got this Unitarian on the committee, and out comes this translation that says that Jesus Christ is God over all. Why? Because whatever Vance Smith says, the Trinitarian scholars can basically use an image of, there, they can sit on him, yeah. and he's not going to be able to say anything. He can't alter it. Now, you've got one man, and any hobby horse he has can be slotted in. Yep. And that's particularly a problem with paraphrases, because in the paraphrase, he's not asking himself, well, what does the original say, and 
how close can I stay to the original? He's saying, well, how can I express what I think is the meaning? And again, if he thinks he's divinely inspired, he's saying, well, what I feel is the meaning. And I mean, it's that infamous Bible study question, isn't it? Well, what does this text mean to you? Right. I don't care what the text means to you. What did it mean to God? What does it mean? But when you're doing a paraphrase, it's, well, what does it mean to me? And oops, which tends to undermine the, the Reformation doctrine of Scripture again, yeah. because if you how can you say how can someone say, well, I believe in the, the verbal plenary inspiration of Holy Scripture and then add whole phrases to Bible texts that have absolutely no antecedent in the original? Right. Yeah, it, it doesn't work. But there's another problem with this, which is. Even more, dare I say it, even worse. And you say, how can it get any worse? Well, it it gets worse like this. That um, Simmons, one of the the bees in his bonnet that he has, is this bizarre idea that the New Testament was originally written in Aramaic. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. And this, of course, is completely bonkers. Um, But to go, just try and um, to go to to what he says in in the um, frequently asked questions again, um, which is it can be quite helpful looking what he says. And the question that's asked is, I hear Aramaic manuscripts of the Bible included in the composition of the Passion Translation. How does this enhance the English version of the Bible? Well, the obvious answer is it can't and it doesn't. I mean, we're back with uh, Coverdale translating the the Latin translation of the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Um, But what he says is, well, in recent years, we have made many new discoveries regarding the original documents and manuscripts that have been compiled to form our Bible, especially the Aramaic manuscripts of the New Testament. One of the unique benefits of the Passion Translation is it has recovered this often neglected language by consulting these ancient biblical manuscripts. Also, people can better encounter the fiery, passionate heart of God. Right. Which sounds great, but what does it mean? It's meaningless, really, but it goes on. Most Christians outside the Middle East are unaware of the significance Aramaic has played in the development of the Holy Scriptures. Um, what? For instance, what? Did you know the books of Ezra and Daniel were originally written in this language? Well, they weren't. Parts of them were. Right. Um, not the whole thing. Um, and did you know it was the language Jesus, the disciples, the earliest Christians wrote? Well, if you didn't, then you weren't paying attention. Because it's a, a fairly common thing that's been pointed out is that the the normal everyday language in uh, Judea and Galilee would have been Aramaic. Um, as I've said, I I studied at seminary, and in my class there was a a young man who had, had great fun with befuddling some of the the tutors. He'd ask them, they look at him and they say, "Because we have all these international students, well, what country do you come from?" And he'd say. He'd ask guess. Um, and of course, he had a Middle Eastern appearance, but he had this fantastic Swedish accent because he was 
Syrian brought up in Sweden. So we had this fantastic, and they go in their heads, well, he looks, looks sort of Middle Eastern, but where do, are they Middle Eastern with that accent? Well, the answer is in Sweden when they're the children of immigrants. But so obviously because he, I studied in the same class as a, a young man who Aramaic was one of the languages he knew. He had an Aramaic background, of course, very much aware of this. Uh-huh. But um, yeah, Aramaic was the, the common language of the common people in Jesus's day and in the area where he was. And he goes on to say, well, which means he probably taught most using this language throughout Galilee and Judea. In fact, many of Jesus' most famous teachings and sayings, like the Lord's Prayer and his Son of Man reference, can be traced to the Aramaic language. He's trying to pull a fast one here, of course. Right. Um, to bring the full texture of God's word to the surface and recapture the original essence of the teachings of Jesus and his disciples, Brian has compared the Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic translations throughout this monumental project. You may consider the Passion translation as a blending of these. You note Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic translations. He's putting them on a level. But actually, he's not. Mm. Because he is, uh, yeah, say, pulling a fast one. He's, what he's actually trying to do is to make the Aramaic really primary. Right. So and he, the question is asked, well, why Aramaic text uses a supplemental source material throughout the Passion Translation rather than only for Daniel, Ezra, and a few other places in the Hebrew Bible? Good question. And the reality is there is no reason to do it. Um, ancient, yes, the ancient... Aramaic translations are ancient, but they are still translations. And sometimes if you've got a hapax legomena, that's a word um, that appears only once in the Bible, it can be helpful to say, well, how did people approaching this text in the past translate this word? Mm -hmm. Because not always obvious you've got a word that only appears once what it means. And that's where the ancient translations come into their own. That's where they can be quite helpful. Because it shows, well, this is how they understood this word here and then. But that's not what he says. He says, well, over the past several decades, there have been many new discoveries respecting the original documents and manuscripts compiled to form our Bible, especially the Aramaic manuscripts of the New Testament. Aramaic and Hebrew are related linguistically, and both are considered to be emotional and poetic. Greek speaks the mind, while Aramaic and Hebrew speak powerfully to the heart. Oh, boy. Um... It is widely known that Aramaic was the language Jesus, the apostle, and the earliest Christians spoke. Well, yes, because yeah, they lived in Aramaic-speaking countries. But, um, but to go on, um, it was the dominant language in most settings Jesus taught, probably the first language of most Galileans outside urban areas, and the common tongue of most Judeans. It was the lingua franca of the Middle East until around the 3rd century. Recent biblical scholarship has begun tracing many of Jesus' teachings back to an original Aramaic source. And this, again, is, is weasel words. He's trying to create a pretext. Right. Some can argue that the original Greek manuscripts were translations of even more original Aramaic sources. When you've got that one reference in, the far, in one of the fathers to Matthew writing in the Hebrew tongue originally. But I think that's it. Yeah. And you just have to look at the Greek of Matthew. The Greek of Matthew isn't a translation. It's an original Greek 
text. Yep. Um, he may have made notes in Aramaic. He probably did. But when he wrote up his gospel, he did it in Greek. Um, and yes, there are occasions where it's possible that behind the the Greek, there's a, an Aramaic wordplay, perhaps. But saying, well, in the Aramaic, this would have been is a very, very common dodge to introduce something that's not actually there in the original Greek text. Right. So we don't have any manuscripts that say what I want to say, but we're, we're going to look at an Aramaic translation of the Greek text and say the oh, yeah. Aramaic has the greater weight than the Greek text yeah. so that I can and, now claim some dynamic love language mm, thingy with Aramaic so yeah. I can put my, and, my pet and, and doctrine into is, the text. Yeah. And this is what goes on. He, he describes the, the method here that uh, in order to fully utilize this Aramaic layer beneath the Bible and the recent developments in biblical textual and source criticism, Dr. Simmons compared both Greek and Aramaic translation throughout this monumental project. You may consider the Passion Translation as a synthesis of the two. When he, that is Simmons, has resorted to using the alternative Aramaic text, which may vary minimally from the Greek, I'll shortly give examples of where it departs massively from the Greek, but... um, you will notice an explanatory footnote to let you know. We believe in u- that using the original Aramaic source in addition to the original Greek ones, again, you see this parallel put in there. There but, is no original Aramaic source. Exactly. Exactly, because this adds an important lens through which to read God's word and understand his revelation of truth and love. We trust you will find the nuance added by the Aramaic to bring a greater clarity to the inspired text. Well, clarity is something that this translation allegedly lacks right um the question is asked vital question um why is there sometimes a preference for the aramaic over the original greek well while it is generally agreed that the that greek was a language in which the new testament was written for several decades there's been a dis- debate surrounding the primacy of greek versus aramaic as original text for the new testament there is a growing interest in apparent Aramaic, in an apparent Aramaic layer undergirding most of the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels. Some believe Aramaic Christian texts may have been circulated in the years leading up the transmission of the Gospels. He gives a couple of quotations. Craig Keenan notes, the bilingual milieu of the Syrian and Palestinian churches undoubtedly facilitated the ready translation of a, on a popular level of Jesus' sayings from Aramaic to Greek. That's, he's quoting Craig Keenan, the historical Jesus of the Gospels. Now, Keenan is not saying that there were Aramaic originals that were then translated. He's talking about the pre-gospel writing transmission of the sayings of Jesus and how then these were written up. Um, likewise, Michael Bird, he goes on, argues that large sections of the Gospels are being capable of retroverted back into Aramaic, suggesting that Aramaic sources have a place in the Jesus tradition. Now, when I was doing my research for this, I came across a review of the Passion Translation by Andrew Wilson, who is a a charismatic pastor in the United Kingdom, on the um, website thinktheology.co.uk, entitled, What's Wrong with the Passion Translation? And he had uh, actually contacted Michael Bird. He followed up by Michael Bird, and Michael Bird's response was short and to the point, he says. I won't quote it, but it was effectively Australian for... I don't think this person is correct. The Australians have a 
fairly, they're fairly relaxed about using colourful language that we in the uh, staid uh, original United Kingdom in, in England we we wouldn't use. Mm-hmm. But I did mention this to a, a pastor friend of mine who used to be until very recently a missionary in West Africa, um, and he he replied with words the effect of is this man mentally ill wow and i certainly simmons is at least in a a colloquial sense a bit bonkers yeah um given these advanced in tech for criticism simmons goes on in regards to the anecdote of the bible dr simmons believes it's time to bring this forgotten neglected language into the translation equation because how influential the language was during the first and second centuries on the biblical world and the bible itself a growing chorus of scholars when someone says scholars say but doesn't actually quote any this mm. probably means a few fringe nutcases mm-hmm. but a growing chorus of scholars is recognizing certain idioms and phrases are better understood by referring to the aramaic behind them again cultural background can help but Dr. Simmons has applied the lens of this language to better capture the original cultural and historical context of God's word. It is also meant to act as a prism through which to further illuminate the meaning of God's original message, acting as an alternative perspective to the typical Greek-centric one, never mind, of course, that it was in Greek that God originally wrote the text. Right. It's, and I think it is this idea that Using Aramaic means it's more passionate and fiery, etc. Well, it means it's more paraphrased and more bizarre at times. But this idea that reclaiming lost Aramaic texts, I'm quoting here again, um, brings the full texture of God's word to the surface, helping you recapture the original essence of the teaching of Jesus and his disciples. And. yeah, in, uh, in other words, they're claiming that true Christianity in its pristine form was this fringe, charismatic NAR theology. Oh, yes. And Andrew Wilson, who is a, a charismatic, again, I emphasize, he's a charismatic. He, he's not a cessationist. But Andrew Wilson um, refers to this stuff about the Aramaic as being... Um, almost Gnostic. Yeah. It's this, this hidden wisdom that you go back to the Aramaic. So, okay, what does the Aramaic, how does the Aramaic affect the translation? Um, important point. Well, give a, a couple of examples. Again, Colossians 3.18, you remember we looked at that and comments were made. And, and why is it that it reads... Let every wife be supportive and tenderly devoted to her husband rather than um, submit to her husband or be submissive to her husband. Well, there's a footnote and the footnote says that this is directly based on the Aramaic. So. Just uh, Yes, that, that every wife be supportive and tend to devote to her husband. Footnote. Um, the, Arame- the Greek word, hupotasso, can be translated submitted, submitted, attached, or supportive. The Aramaic word is best translated as tenderly devoted. 
Both concepts are included in this translation. Well, the Aramaic is an interpretation. Yep. Colossians 3.5 is an example where the Aramaic is really useful for the NAR. The A good translation would be put to death, therefore your members which are upon the earth. Sexual immorality, uncleanness, false affection, evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. The Passion Translation says, so you must consider your life in this natural realm as already dead and buried. Live as one who has died to every form of sexual immorality and impurity. Live as one who has died to diseases and desires for the forbidden things, including the desire of wealth, which is the essence of idol worship. Died to diseases. Wow. Slotted in direct from the Aramaic. There's nothing approximating the Greek. But how useful, how useful it is if you have this theology that says, well, Christians shouldn't suffer from illnesses. Yep. Um, Colossians 3.25 is one of the glaring issues. I'm doing, giving a lot of the examples in Colossians 3, as I say, because I want to emphasize that you can literally demonstrate every problem with this from one chapter. Wow. And it isn't that I went hunting for chapters, it's that I chose Colossians 3 at random. <laughs> you just put your <laughs> finger down and said, let's look at this one and, and the whole thing. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, so, Colossians 3... 25, um, but he who does wrong shall receive for the wrong that he has done, and there is no respect of persons, no partiality. So the idea there is that he who has done wrong shall receive recompense Mm -hmm. for the wrong he has done. The Passion Translation reads, a disciple will be repaid for what he has learned and followed, for God pays no attention to the titles or prestige of men. Oh, what? It's entirely different, isn't it? It doesn't even have the same meaning. It's not even close. Well, but that's because it's translated literally from the Aramaic. Oh, my. Yep. Okay. There's the problem. Yep. But the Aramaic allows him to change things, chop and change things, move things around render things in such a way as to really alter what's being said in the original. And it is, it's uh, it's Gnostic in a sense. Yeah. yeah. It's, and you can go through over and over again, um, this idea, Almost any chapter, I just opened it, ran to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 3. Your new life in the anointed one began with the Holy Spirit giving you a new birth. Why then do you so foolishly turn from living in the Spirit to becoming slaves again to your flesh? Do you really think you can bring yourself, yourself to maturity in the anointed one without the Holy Spirit? So that's Galatians 3, 3. Um... And this is what, how he renders it. 
That's now, like, it's not even close. No, it, it's not. It's, it's I mean, it, oh my, my, it's like yeah, so, not even close. Give it a, a decent translation. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That's all that the uh, the Greek says. Right. But why the expansion? Aramaic. Some of it's Aramaic. I suspect some of it also is Simmons. Yeah. But it helps to give this idea, ah, oh, this, this deeper meaning, these deeper teachings in the Aramaic. And it is. It's, it's somewhat cultic yeah. in its character. Yeah. Yeah. And it makes you wonder, well, why? Well, the answer is, I think, very simple. It's that he is uh, slotting these things in. And he's doing it because that's the theology of the NAR. That's the teaching of the NAR. And the, the Aramaic helps. And the, this idea that he's inspired himself, all that helps. Yeah. And because he's a um, it's a one man one man band one man show, there's an awful lot that you think. Why is it there? Now, one of the Bible translations that I regarded really before reading this as having the absolute worst phrase of any Bible translation ever is the New English Bible. The NEB is. It, is odd. Okay. It's bizarre, because the, the NEB, it's... It's kind of... It's a mash-up between the more literal and the less literal, and some bits are more literal, some bits are less li- literal. It's the fellow behind it, C.H. Dodd. Now, C.H. Dodd had his own odd views. Um, you know, there was a, a limerick about Dodd. There was a, a professor named Dodd, with views exceedingly odd. He spelled, if you please, his name with three Ds when one is sufficient for God. (laughs) Okay. So, Dodd was a bit odd. That's the reputation he had. And the NEB gives us, in Acts 17.18, this phrase, propagandists for foreign deities. Okay. Propagandists for for, uh, foreign deities, those who preach foreign gods, but propagandists for foreign deities isn't exactly everyday English. It says in the preface to the NEB that the translators were chosen for their scholarly qualities alone. Somebody has commented, well, it can't have been for their good English. (laughs) And you... but, But... because Simmons is this this one man, this um, NAR man, you've got all this jargon like kingdom, realm, new creation, life, prophesy over, all this sort of odd language that isn't actually any clearer. I mean, for, for all this idea, well, English, the English language is changing. English language is a living language. Living languages do change. Um, that's why they're alive. So, yes, people today speak slightly differently than they did in the 1950s in England. Sure. The Queen doesn't speak the Queen's English anymore, they say. But 
you have this linguistic change, certainly. But I don't know anybody who speaks in the language these NAR speak that yeah. Simmons does. So, for example, again, I'm opening it at random here. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Beloved ones, God has called us to live a life of freedom in the Holy Spirit. But don't view this wonderful freedom as an opportunity to set up a base of operations in the natural realm. What? Yes, who who talks like that? <laughs> um, I, I, I have a, in terms of sort of um, ledger reading, I have something of an interest in military history. And I've just finished reading a, a book on the aux units, the auxiliary units that Winston Churchill set up in case there was a German invasion of Britain. And they had these OBs, they called them, operational bases, which were these hidden bunkers in woodland. And that's the imagery that comes, it's a military metaphor, it's a military image, but really, unless you've got a military background, and even you have, do you speak like that? Well, people don't. Or again, Verse 16 of the same chapter, as you yield freely and fully to the dynamic life and power of the Holy Spirit, you will abandon the cravings of your self-life. For the self-life craves the things that offend the Holy Spirit and hinder him from living freely within you. And the Holy Spirit's intense cravings hinder your old self-life from dominating you. The Holy Spirit is the only one who defeats the cravings of your natural life. So then the two incompatible and conflicting forces within you are yourself life of the flesh and the new creation life of the spirit. <laughs> How is that any clearer? It's, it's, it's not. That's clear NAR theology stuck into a text where it isn't existing yeah. in the originals. Yes, and co- compare and contrast the original. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the, of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another. So you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. That's clear. Yep. That's straightforward. Walk in the spirit. Yes, one might paraphrase that or explain that as, to use the title of J.I. Packer's famous book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. And that's an explanation. Mm-hmm. That's a, but what Simmons is doing actually makes it less clear. Yeah. And I wonder, reading some of this, either, I think either Simmons has been so caught up in the NAR that he now thinks in NAR speak, mm-hmm. which is a totally different... It reminds me really of... I, I've done many things in my day. I was... And before I became a pastor, I worked at, I did my degree in environmental science. And of course, science, you've got your own scientific language. And you talk about chromosomes and alleles and this sort of thing in genetics. And people, what are you talking about? And amino acids and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And it's a sort of inside language. Or again, I've worked in department store. And we had our own special names for things in the department store. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the display units, for example, one of them is called a Luton. And if you talk about, well, move that Luton over there. And anybody who didn't work in the store, well, what's a Luton? Yep. It's a type display unit. Um, and, and again, in, in banking, I've worked for a while in a bank, and then we had this banking jargon, banking language. You know a bit about that yourself. Um, and reading this, it reads like this sort of jargon. Yeah. And what, one of the skills that you, you need if you work in any sort of organization at all is to be able to not speak in jargon. Yeah. I remember one occasion I was looking for work when I was unemployed for a time. I went to an agency and gave them my CV and got a call back from the agency. And one of the problems is that you're your CV isn't descript enough. I said, what? Well, it's not descript. What do you mean by that? She could not tell me what she meant by the word descript. I, I didn't have a clue. I've never worked in um, HR, human resources. It's HR speak. Yep. And this is NAR speak. Now, either Simmons has been so immersed in the NAR that he cannot speak english anymore or it's deliberate yeah and it's making sure that people have to go through their nar leadership to explain what these things mean it's inside a language which means then that they're being catechized into nar doctrine as oh, with, yes. with the false impression that this is what the Bible actually says. And yep. so that's going to make the deprogramming of somebody you know, even that much more difficult because mm. you're going to have to take this Bible out of their hands and get, say, listen, we're going to have to start with square one because what you think is the, are the scriptures aren't. Mm. And what you were taught and believing that this is actually what the Bible says, it doesn't. I mean, yes. this what this Passion Translation literally is going to do is darken their minds even more and keep them in greater bondage. It's going to literally, you know, wrap the bondage, you know, the mm. bands around them even tighter, uh, making it that much more difficult for people to actually get out of this uh, of this false system. I mean, which is really becoming, a, you said it yourself, very very cult like. This is mm. becoming its own religion, its own cult, like the Jehovah's it Witnesses or the Mormons. It's very Gnostic, very Gnostic, the idea that your leaders have this sort of um, special anointing so yeah. that they can teach the truth and nobody else has this access that they have. Um, the Passion Translation we know is unnecessary. There is literally no reason for another English translation. But it's worse than that. It's horrendously, horribly, awfully bad. It's so bad that I'm not sure the language exists to express how bad it is. Yeah. It is, it's completely horrible. Um, how about the word demonic? <laughs> yes. Satanic, yes. something like that, you know. Yes, it, it is. It really leaves 
me going, I'm, I'm not surprised that my friend on in the hearing about it said, it's just fellow bonkers or something. Right. Um, and just, so my, my friend was a missionary in West Africa, preaching the gospel to Muslims for uh, many, many years and sharing the word in a different language with people. And this sort of idea of direct divine inspiration, what does it do? It it destroys the Reformation rediscovery of the word of God. Because suddenly, if you want the deeper meaning, you've got to go to the NAR magisterium. Yeah. If you want the deeper meaning, well, only our inspired translation. It reminds me of Joseph Smith yep. and his inspired version, except because Joseph Smith, being Joseph Smith, he never quite finished it because what Smith was doing was this idea that these bits that were chopped out that he was putting back in. But it's the same sort of idea behind it. That if you want to have the fullness of the Bible, you've got to go to the prophet. You've got to go to these apostles. When the reality is that what you've got is this appalling overexpansion. You've got this jargon. You've got this bizarre idea. Put it this way. And another reason for looking at letters from heaven by the apostle Paul of the volume, looking at uh, the Pauline writings. Paul wrote to Galatia. He wrote to Ephesus. He wrote to Philippi. He wrote to Colossae. What language did they speak in Philippi? Greek and Latin. Where's Philippi today? What country? Um, it, well, isn't it in Macedonia? Yeah, it's in Greece. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's in Greece. It's ancient Macedonia, um, but not modern Macedonia. But it's in Greece. Language that most of the people there would understand? Greek. Greek. Yeah. The same, the people in Ephesus, what would we call those people today? We call them Greeks. We wouldn't you know of the Ephesus in modern day Turkey, but the, the Turks moved all the Greeks out of Turkey shortly after the fall of the Ottoman Empire yeah. to do with the, well, the Ottoman Empire business. But the, the original inhabitants, the Turks don't come from Turkey. They invaded Turkey. The original inhabitants, we would call them Greeks today. Mm-hmm. So you're writing to people who were Greeks. And what language do you write to them in? Greek. And yet Simmons wants to imply that Paul wrote to Greeks in Aramaic. Well, that's the love language, man. He wanted them to turn their brains off, man. Didn't you understand that? Don't you get that? (laughs) (laughs) That that seems to be the idea. It's it's just bizarre. Yeah. Um, And here's an amusing thing. Well, ironic, really, from the website. Answering the question. Why are deity pronouns not capitalized in the Passion Translation? Now, I don't do that. Uh, the King James didn't do it. The um, Really, that comes in in the, the, the later 19th century. And you, you look at earlier writings, people didn't pro- capitalize deity pronouns. You find there are problems created in some Bible versions that do it. Yeah. Because, of course, you're engaging in interpretation. The, the obvious one I think of is... Uh, 
uh, Second Thessalonians, he who restrains, well, is he who restrains capitalized or not? Depends what your theology is. The New King James falsely, in my view, capitalizes it. And therefore, you have this idea that the Holy Spirit is withdrawn from the earth. So yeah, don't do it. It's a bad idea. Um, but um, David Sluker, the editorial director um, who worked with Simmons on this, he says, when we began to work with Dr. Brian Simmons on the Passion Translation, I did not realize how important capitalizing deity pronouns is to many, many Christians, especially in the West, even though that is my personal preference. Reading the capitalization of him, he, his, you, your, my, and mine when they refer to God was part of my upbringing as both the NKJV and the NASB were my primary go-to Bibles. For many, not capitalizing these, wor- capitalizing these words shows dishonor for the Almighty and is another sign Christians are allowing God or society to affect our respect for God. Yet after much prayer, thought, and conversation, we made the decision not to capitalize deity pronouns. Because this is such an important issue for some of our readers, below are some of the reasons why we've made this decision. And it's quite ironic going through this. First of all, original Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek manuscripts do not do this. To capitalize these pronouns is adding something to the original text that does not <laughs> otherwise exist. <laughs> what? <laughs> you, you slot... I mean, this, this is straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. <laughs> Unbelievable. I mean, just the examples you gave, they've added so much to the scripture. I mean, I'm surprised at the the final product. I would be shocked if it doesn't come in at, you know, maybe twice as much in weight and paper based on the addition. (laughs) And you think, (laughs) it's just adding something. What are you doing with the vast majority of the text, you foolish people? Right. Um, and he goes on, tech practice not begin until the time of King James, which is false, incidentally. I've got, um, I was brought up on the Book of Common Prayer, 1662 Book of Common Prayer, and the authorized version. The authorized version doesn't capitalize pronouns referring to deity. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't carry over into the King James translation. It's put into, it really comes in the later 19th century. Um, you look at the Puritan in England, or the 18th century divines, or the more conservative 19th century divines, 19th century English theologians, they don't capitalize these words. It's really a sort of a Victorian piety, I think is the right way to put it. Um, And again, it goes on to say, in some cases, capitalization of deity pronouns can actually cause a misreading of the text and limit the meaning of the Holy Spirit may want to convey to the reader. You are kidding me. Heal thyself. <laughs> so Stop. they really care about this when it comes to deity pronouns, but yeah. not the rest of the text. Nope. <laughs> what? Um, and again, there's a... And this emphasis, you say, that... It, Oh, this can oh, this can alter the meaning. People can misunderstand the meaning. Well, it would help if you didn't, if your man didn't just slot in whatever you felt like into the text. Right. And that would help people to understand what's being said. Unbelievable! It's <laughs> wow. Yeah, Pastor <laughs> Charlie, I just. There, there's like no redeeming value to this so-called translation. No, no. I mean, my my conclusion of I, I put in my 
article for our magazine is um, the final sentence is there is literally no reason any believer should read this and every reason why it should be avoided. Right. And I'm not engaging in any hyperbole there. Um, the passion translation is not simply unnecessary. It is unnecessary. But it represents an enormous misstep in Bible translation in many, many ways. And of all the myriad English Bibles on the market today, um, it is by far the worst outside of the ones published by the cults. And I'm not so sure in, that it isn't including the NWT. Right. Um, and it's, in spite of this idea that it's making these things clear, it's in fact considerably less clear than just about every other translation out there. Right. As I've said, it makes the message look like the NASB. Yeah, wow. And that there's no advantage in using it whatsoever. And anyone who's using this alleged translation, this bizarre, expansive paraphrase, is at a considerable disadvantage. Yeah. And yet, and yet, Simmons and the people behind it, they want you to use it as your primary translation. They want people to be going to this and saying, well, this, this is the Bible. They want people to be looking at it and saying, this is what God has said. And it's not. Yeah. So, um, yeah. wow. So, yeah, here we go. He says, well, what makes the, yeah, is the Passion Translation considered a good translation for serious study? The Passion Translation, he says, is an excellent translation you can use as your primary text to seriously study God's word because it combines the best aspects of what is called formal and functional equivalence Bible. It is a balanced translation that tries to hold both the words literal means and original message in proper tension, resulting in an entirely new, fresh, fiery translation of God's word. Furthermore, this is the first modern English translation to use Aramaic, the language of Jesus and the disciples, the lens through which to view God's original word to us, a word of truth and love. This translation philosophy will benefit your serious study of scripture in several ways. The text has been interpreted from the original languages, carrying its original meaning and giving you an accurate, reliable expression of God's original message we've already seen. It does nothing of the sort. Meaning of a passage takes priority over the form of the original word, so every English speaker can encounter the heart of God through his word in a way that's natural and readable. Well, it's not natural language. I don't know anybody who speaks like that. Um, now, granted, I'm an Englishman, I'm, but I'm from Eastern England. I studied uh, for the, I did, did my degree in Cheshire, which is one part of England. I did my uh, um, seminary training in London. I spent six months as an assistant pastor in Wales, where they speak an entirely different language. Um, although the bit I was in, they mostly speak English, but there's a good, good number of Welsh speakers there as well. Um, and, and I'm ministered today in Staffordshire, where they have a really interesting dialect and their own language almost. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've been to various parts of England and I know various dialect words and this sort of thing, but I know nobody who speaks like this. It's a, a weird jargon. 
Um, my father, who's a, a university professor, he spent uh, 18 months as a visiting professor in Fulton, Missouri. So, yeah, he's, and I, I spent um, a couple of weeks out in America back when I was a boy. And so I, I do have a little bit of experience of American English in a, na- a natural native setting. Mm-hmm. I've never heard speak like this. Yeah. Um, but it's not natural at all. It's not very readable either. Um, and it, yeah, this translation keeps the Bible in step with changes in modern English, helping you clearly understand God's original message and how it applies to your life in the 21st century. That's not how English is spoken by anybody much, really. But once more, reclaiming lost Aramaic text brings the full texture of God's word to the surface, helping you recapture the original essence of the teaching of Jesus. You see what I mean? It's, it's a Gnostic emphasis. Yeah. This version taps into the love language of God, letting the words of Scripture go through the human soul, past the defences of our mind, and into the spirit. Well, I can quite see how listening to this jargon for, of reading this jargon for any length of time is going to numb the brain. Yeah, but I'm not quite sure that's what he means. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, this is this this is an extremely dangerous publication, and the marketing blurb that you read there. Clearly is propaganda and does, oh, yes. does not reflect accurately what this body of work mm. truly represents, which is a great threat to the body of Christ and imperiling mm. the souls of those people who believe naively that in reading this, they're actually getting a better understanding of what God's word says and means when in fact they are <laughs> they are far, far, far away from understanding scriptures by reading this as if it were the scriptures. Oh, yes, and just another thing that's said. Now, you and I, we're pastors. Our primary work is to preach the word of God, to to bring the word of God to to God's people. And a major part of the service is to read the Holy Scriptures. So you've you've noticed, playing my sermons, listening to my, my preaching, that before preaching, I shall, I'll read a, a chunk of the, the scriptures yep. and then from that part of the Bible. Now, some years ago at a fraternal that I was a member of, we, we had a, a meeting where we, we talked about reading the Bible and we all agreed, all these uh, reformed pastors all together from England and Wales, we said, that's primary, reading the Holy Scripture. So last, last yeah, yesterday in the, in the morning, um, I, I I read for well for well six minutes over six minutes of just reading the Bible. That was the Bible reading, followed by a thirty minute sermon. Mm-hmm. And and I, I I've been preached occasions where I've read the Bible for the best part of ten minutes because that's God's word. So one of the things that it's very important in a Bible translation is its use in the pulpit. Yep. The the old authorized version it had on the, the front appointed to be read in churches. And what that really means is that it's, it's laid out in such a way as to make it easy to be read to the people. And one of the vital things in preaching is reading the Bible. So what makes the Passion Translation good for use from the pulpit? Well, the answer is absolutely nothing, uh, but I digress. What 
What do they say in the advertising blurb? Well, the word of God was never meant to be studied in personal isolation, which is true, incidentally. Sola Scriptura doesn't mean that I'm off on my own in isolation, reading the Bible with no connection whatsoever to the church. We are, you know, God saves us individually, but he doesn't leave us as isolated individuals. The church is absolutely vital. When I was a student, I was involved in the Christian Union movement, UCCF, um, the British equivalent of uh, the uh, InterVarsity Fellowship. And one of the things drummed into us that we emphasized again and again in UCCF, in the Christian Union, was you must be part of a local church. Mm-hmm. The Christian Union is not a substitute for the local church. If you if your university work is so much that you have to, there's only one Christian meeting you can go to, go to the local church. There was one young lady who, when I was uh, on the committee of the, the CU in my, my final year at university, we discovered that there's a young lady who had also been elected to the committee, appointed to the committee, who wasn't going to a local church. And the first thing that, well, but, bit of background. Myself and the president, we were the two Reformed Baptists on that committee. The others belonged to various other churches. But this young lady didn't belong to any church. And the, the president said to her, right, this Sunday you're coming to my church and I'm taking you to church because you must go to church. You must go where the word of God is preached and where the people of God gather together, not just students, not just people who are like you, but people who are different from you. People who have different backgrounds or different ages. The church is vital. And that's where the word of God is proclaimed and preached and taught. So, yes, the word of God was never meant to be studied in personal isolation, but proclaimed and preached in community. We are no man is an island entire unto himself, but each part of a continent, says the the English poet. No man is an island. Nobody's isolated. He, and, and God puts, to use the um, King James language, he puts the solitary in families. It's a marvelous thing to see the family of the local church. And I mean, a, a true local church. God's people, he goes on to say, from Israel to the church, God's people have read aloud the Holy Scriptures, a tradition that Jesus mirrored and modeled in the temple. Given that it was meant to be read aloud, it is vital that the Bible is clearly spoken when read and easily understood when listened to. You know, you've listened to me reading sections of this PPT, mm-hmm. uh, Passion Translation. Is it clearly spoken when read? Is it easily understood when listened to? It's not. No. And they make this bizarre claim that the Passion Translation has been crafted with modern English readers and listeners in mind. Which is why it is ideal for modern English churches. The cadence and word choices, sentence structure and emotive language all lend a hand in helping readers easily proclaim passages. Pastors clearly communicate God's word and listeners understand the specific message that God wants them to hear. Whatever your role in the church today, the passion translation will help your messages come alive with the fiery passion of God and help your listeners encounter the heart of God. Well, I... So I, I edit a magazine and I, I started writing for the magazine some years ago, writing book reviews. And there were some occasions when a book would land 
on the desk. I'd, open, I'd have the book out there and say, well, what do I want this book to be like? What do I want to get from this book? And I'd write a review that wasn't actually the book itself, but was this is what I I would like, what a book like this, I think a book on this topic, this is what this book should communicate. Mm-hmm. Well, that reads like that. What should a a Bible translation be like? Now, sometimes, but always, of course, having read the book, I would end up editing it and changing it. But a couple of occasions, I've written the review, and I've then deleted it and replaced it with one that says this book was, in, was immensely disappointing. Hmm. And that that's really what this this work is. It's profoundly disappointing in terms of actually communicating the truth and actually communicating right. what God has said. So, and this idea of emotive language again is is often it's sort of slotted in without any real sort of reference to the original. And so you'll have, you know, we're, we're, we're passionate about this or passionate about this, that and the other. Um, we Every time we pray for your hearts, overflow with thanksgiving to Father God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have heard of the devoted lives of faith and the tender love you have for all the holy, his holy believers. Well, there's not actually any reason to slot in a lot of this emotive language, passionate. Mm-hmm. This thing. It, it, can't we just allow the Bible to be the Bible? Um, can't we just ask, well, what what did God say? Rather than emoting all over the place. And again, I, I, I'm sure I'm biased. I'm a staid, old-fashioned Englishman, and emoting all over the place is not what we do. <laughs> Stiff up a lip and all that sort of thing. Um, right, right. But at the same time, Seriously, the Bible as it is yeah. is is something to be passionate about. I am, as a as a preacher, passionate about the Word of God. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew and the Greek. And that's something to be passionate about. Again, this is a a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Do you need to to add anything to that? No. No. No, you you just have to emphasize this, this wonderful point that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now that's first Timothy one fifteen. Well, let's ask the question: How does the Passion translation render that? I can testify that the word is true and deserves to be received by all. That Jesus Christ came into the world to bring sinners back to life, even me, the worst sinner of all. Well, it's 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 also save. It's not bring back to life. It's yeah. the idea of being brought back to life biblically. Well. You he has made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. He has made us alive together with Christ. That's biblical. But it's not in First Timothy one fifteen. Yeah. It's as if it's as if their whole translation methodology is 
yeah, I think we can we can improve on that. You know, yeah, oh, yeah. I, yeah this is what this text we can we can we can gussy this up and make it even mm. better. Yeah. And, and you, you remind me, you remind me. I'm making mentioning First Timothy, uh, which I'm teaching through at the moment on a, in our Wednesday afternoon meeting, Wednesday evening meetings, even at, at the Bethel in Hanley, and um, that one of the the passages that is problematic to the NAR, of course, is um, for it's Timothy two eleven to fifteen. And we all know why, mm-hmm. because it's about women preaching and teaching and uh, Patricia King. and That's Catherine. right. That's right. But Allah, they're going to be going, well, don't, don't agree with that. God can't be saying that. Um, now, it, it's very straightforward, as I said to our folk at the Bethel. You know, it's, it's not actually, for the most part, the, the last bit about being saved and childbearing can be, you know, is a little bit more difficult, but... Most of it is very, very straightforward. Mm-hmm. It's very easy, really. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with self-control. Yeah, that's straightforward. I do not allow, I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. Yep. Straightforward. So how does the Passion Translation deal with this? If Patricia King thinks it's wonderful, you go, I don't think it can be very faithful on this passage somehow. Right. It's not. Let the women who are new converts be willing to learn with all submission to their leaders and not speak out of term. Are you kidding me? I don't advocate that the newly converted women be the teachers in the church, assuming authority over the men, but to live in peace. Wow. Remember, New World Translation, all other things. Uh-huh. Yep. And footnote. There's a footnote. So, how is this to be understood? implied and understood by the cultural context of that day. That's how new converts, that's why it should be there. It's implied. (laughs) (laughs) And then why does Paul make reference to the the creation? Wow. Exactly. Wow. But again, you see, it goes, Adam did not mislead Eve, but Eve misled him and violated the command of God. How's translated from the Aramaic? Wow. Oh, yes. There's your problem. Yep. So this ah. this is going to this translation, which isn't really even a translation at all, is only going to further cement them into the false teaching and false doctrines that they're buying into. It's now going oh, to yes. be codified in their this is in their false Bible. This isn't even the Bible anymore. This is something no. totally different. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. And again, it goes on, yet a woman shall live in restored dignity by means of her children, receiving the blessing that comes from raising them as consecrated children, nurtured in faith and love, walking in wisdom. Which again is going back to the Aramaic. Now, she shall be saved by childbearing. That is a, a difficult text. Yeah, yeah. But all the more reason for leaving it as she shall be saved through childbearing. Because then 
people will go, well, what's that mean? Rather than smoothing things out. Yeah. I mean, Paul, after all, Peter um, says there are things that are difficult to understand. Yep. And rather than smoothing these things out, we, we should leave them as the Holy Spirit saw fit to leave them. Right. And, and then maybe even possibly pay attention to how the, the church has historically understood some of oh, these yes. more difficult exactly. passages. You know, exactly. Which uh, then connects you with the past. Yes. Uh, and, you know, and say, well, how have our brothers in, the, in, in previous millennia dealt with these things? Mm. Yeah, so, for example, that passage that um, she should be saved through childbearing. Well, of course, in the Greek, there's a, a definite art. There's an article there. Yeah. The childbearing. And yeah. many, many of the fathers and such recent teachers as John Stott have connected that with the, the birth of Christ. Yep, that's childbearing exactly that. Mary, yep. who through whom comes the Christ who was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And by flattening these things out and slotting these interpretations in, you get this sort of, um, well, you you lose. And this is the irony here, you see. So much is done in the the name of a a deeper meaning. But you lose the deeper meaning. Yeah, no, it, it's it's actually getting to the point of practically being meaningless. Oh yes, you know, you lose all of the contour mm. and nuance and some of the some of the more subtle colors. You know, mm. in, in the Bible, uh, they've all been muted, and you know, with this, it, it, it's it, it's where there's fine brushstrokes in the text. They've taken out a roller, you know, a, you know, a you know, paint roller, and just you know, covered it over and wrote, written in their own stuff. Oh, yes. Uh, it's a problem I found with the, the message, the message that uh, Peterson very often deleted Paul's metaphors and put his own metaphors in instead. Wow. Um, and a metaphorical language is difficult. Yeah. People have problems with figures of speech. Modern, modern English people in particular, I... I remember, um, you find this with people in the hymns, for example, poetic language, poetry lives on figures of speech. Yeah. Poetry needs metaphor. And metaphor makes something interesting and exciting. It, it livens things up. Again, it's the actual, if you will, heart language in the Bible. Because yeah. metaphor slaps some colour on something. So you have this this wonderful imagery in Galatians five seven. You ran well, who hindered you that you should not obey the truth? And you've got this picture of the, the runner on the track and he's running and running with all his might and then somebody sticks a foot out in front of him and whack down he goes. Yeah. Wonderful, colourful, striking metaphor. Passion translation. Before you were led astray, you were so faithful to Messiah. Why have you now turned away from what is right and true? Who has deceived you? Where's the the runner metaphor gone? Yeah, why did he get rid of it? Because the the runner metaphor opens the whole... Well, the, the answer very often is that modern people have trouble 
a lot of modern people have a problem with metaphors. Hmm. The other thing about metaphors is a lot of Paul's metaphors are, are really elegant and restrained. Yeah. You'll have straightforward, literal language with no figures of speech. And then you have a, a little metaphor slotted in to liven things up a bit, which is beautiful, mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah. And Galatians 6, 9, you have this language, let us not be weary in well-doing, in doing well, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. And you have this little metaphor of the, the reaper, the harvest. Yeah. Little metaphor that comes in there. Well, Simmons makes it clumsy and clunky. And don't allow yourselves to be weary or disheartened in planting good seeds for the season of reaping the wonderful harvest you've planted is coming. Oh, what? (laughs) You, You can see what he's trying to do here. He's trying to expand the metaphor so it, so that both sides involve the metaphor, both the sowing and the reaping. The doing good and the reaping. But the metaphor, the little metaphor that Paul has, the restrained little metaphor, enlivens the text. But what Simmons says actually confuses it. You know, sowing the goods, planting good seeds is not as clear as doing good. Right. And, and therefore... Where Paul's metaphor enlarges the whole thing, of course, agricultural metaphors are incredibly common in scripture. And they're they're metaphors that really, even in the cities in the West, even in industrial West, we understand reaping as a metaphor. Yes. I'm in the the, post-industrial, really, Midlands. The metaphor we understand best in Stoke-on-Trent is the potter and the clay, because that's that's what the local industry was and still is where it survives. Mm-hmm. I've got a whole load of people in the congregation. You talk about um, the potter and they used to be potters. OK. Or they or they were married to potters and they, or they or they were somewhere in the pottery industry. So that's a metaphor that they'll understand. But again, I think everybody understands the metaphor of reaping the harvest because we all rely on the harvest to survive we all eat at some some point or other vegetable foods and where did the bread on your table come from right so you can see it's a metaphor that works and that people today understand no, no explanation but why why expand it like that to talk about the the sowing um well, of course, what's sowing in modern NAR speak? Yeah. Well, money, you got to sow money. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sowing the good seed. Keep putting the money into the ministry, even though you're not seeing any return. Don't worry. So, it'll eventually come. You just got to keep mm. sowing on the, on the gross and don't mm. ever say any negative words. Oh, no, no, of course not. Of course. And there's the problem. It's... It allows that then to be saying, well, look, keep on sowing the good seed. But the reality, if you just take the the way Paul wrote it, it's very obvious that what's being spoken of here is this uh, doing good, doing good. And it is it is so easy sometimes. It's a a problem that I see 
in the church. I'm in a, in a, a small church, really. I mean, we had uh, less than 20 people Sunday morning in the congregation. And, and it can be disheartening, discouraging. You're, you're preaching the word. You're doing the work. And you see people who come in and they, they, they're in need. And you've got folk in the congregation who put themselves out to help these people. And they get absolutely nothing in return but abuse. Mm-hmm. You, you take a young man and, and you, you help him. He's a heroin addict. And a, this is a real example. Take a young man, heroin addict. You, you persuade, you encourage him to come in um, and you, you help him. You make connections. You, you get him into a rehab center. And within a week, he's on the street again, taking the heroin. Yeah. And you find out he's been using the church toilets to inject the heroin mm. during the services. Um, you have somebody comes in and they, you help them out in terms of helping them with services, this, that, and the other. And they end up throwing it all back in your face. And that can be incredibly discouraging. It's not just a, a modern thing. It's something that we we all, that the church has always suffered from. And what that means is that you, you get discouraged. You get weary in doing good. And so, Paul, no, there is a harvest. There is a, a result down the line. You keep on preaching the gospel and you see absolutely nothing from it. Mm-hmm. But the word is going out. The word's having an effect. Yep. And that's his point in the original. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. And, and yet it's so often it is uh, ignored in TPT and the, the passion translation. Right. You, you miss this of language. And you get some, some really bizarre ideas come in. Um, other reasons now because one of the the best known texts in Galatians mustn't mustn't ignore this one is Galatians uh, chapter 5 and verse 12 tell uh, and you know Galatians 5 12 it's a pretty passionate pretty passionate isn't it Galatians 5 12 and again it would help by looking at the right um passage, uh, the right book. I was looking at First Timothy 5, which does not go the same way. But Galatians 5, 12, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off, is the, the New King James. Mm-hmm. ESV, I think it's immaculate themselves. Yeah, that, that's kind of um, what the Greek's getting at. Exactly. It's And they're, they're into cutting. Well, let them cut themselves off. And um, in certain circles in in English, cut off is a a euphemism mm-hmm. that they would cut themselves off. Well, I, you know, the King James, I think, is using cut off as a euphemism to emasculate themselves, and the readers in the seventeenth century would have got that. Yeah. Well, the Passion translation goes. Tell you the truth, I'm disgusted with all your agitators who are obsessed with cutting. I wish they would e- they would go even further and cut off their legalistic influence from your lives. Uh, 
said you were doing so well, Simmons. Where did you go wrong? I mean, I mean, this guy is, he's unskilled as a translator. This is, yeah. I mean, this is like pick, picking the person who failed Greek and having him be your main, in your singular translator for your new oh, Bible. Yes. This, yeah, this is unbelievable. When they did the, the New World Translation, according to um, Raymond Franz, the uh, chap, of course, he was on the uh, governing body of the JWs and mm-hmm. left and yeah. wrote a uh, book on the subject, Christ the Conscience. According to Franz, his uncle um, was the only person on the NWT translation committee with any Greek experience whatsoever. Oh, wow. Um and he'd had a couple of years. But Franz is much closer in for most of the time than Simmons is. Yeah. Yes, they've got different bad theologies they're slotting in. Simmons isn't an Aryan. He's not a Unitarian of any kind. Right. His errors are in different places, but they're still errors. They and they and certainly he moves well in the direction of heresy and it's it's very troubling to me that this is being published that this is being pushed now we have in hanley there's a we have a little christian bookshop on the church from mm-hmm. the church which everything goes in there is vetted and careful this is not going to be dodgy right uh, it's not going you know, it's not the, the level of thing is he's not well i i must agree with 100 percent. i'm a baptist we've got books by presbyterians in there um i'm a calvinist we've got books by lutherans in there mm-hmm. we it's not the sort of incredibly strict approach but still it's this must be within the, the reformation tradition this must be within the um that sort of ballpark mm-hmm We've also got across town the Methodist Book Centre, which is where we often send people who ask for books that we we would never stock, um, or other things we'd never stock. And the Methodist Book Centre sells the Passion Translation. Now, again, what one thing that has to be emphasised is that to survive in as a, a business in Christian book selling, you've got to do one of two things. You've either got to have a really, really good online sales department, Mm -hmm. or you've got to sell what sells. Yeah. And I I know folk who manage a a book, a Christian bookshop. It's not a a huge success, but because they have a really good online um, presence and because I go there every so often and the, spend uh, huge amounts of money on second-hand books um well, not just me but a lot of a lot of people do it they keep body and soul together they keep going right they pay the bill it helps that they don't have to pay rent for their building and um, it's owned by a church we we lose money on our bookshop that's the ministry of the church we recognize this we either have to we're building up, building up slowly, but we, we lose money. 
Right. Methodist Book Centre, again, their building is owned by the Methodist Church. They didn't have to pay rent. But at the same time, they've got to at least break even, pay the staff, this sort of thing. And so they sell all kinds of stuff. Benny Hinn, you name it, they've got it. Um, and, and because you've got these Christian bookshops that have to work on that basis of, well, people ask for it, we must stock it. A lot of them are selling the Passion Translation. And it's they're attractive little volumes. You can slip one in your in your your bag, in your backpack. You can read it on the train or something. And and if if you've got no sort of discernment at all, if you haven't been brought up in a a background, or not even just brought up, if you haven't been taught. I mean, I I come from a a broad Anglican background. Mm -hmm. It was. It was a toss-up, really, when you went into that church on a Sunday morning, whether the the minister, the rector, would be preaching the orthodox historic Christian faith or something else. I remember vividly a, a, a Christmas sermon that was basically Martianism. Wow. And the, he didn't he didn't know he was. He was he was a, a man he. Who he was passing on what one of his lecturers at a liberal theological college had told him. But other times he would just say something's true. And you know, so I, I was 18 reading when I was converted. 18, going, going, went off to university. And the first CU meeting I went to, the, the teacher, the, the chap who was visiting student preacher, was preaching. And I, I listened to what he was saying, and I thought, well, that is, that's wrong, that's false, that's nonsense. And I didn't go back for months. I, um, incidentally, since I was converted, I, I haven't changed my mind on that matter. Because what he was teaching was the Joel's army teaching. Whoa. Oh, yeah. So... I came out of a liberal Anglican background, broad Anglican background. Um, the miracles, well, they were you know, really their parables. They're expressing a truth about God, but the story didn't necessarily happen the way that it says. You know, the, the, the idea that old uh, William Barclay has that the feeding of the five thousand, well, the, the the lad giving his food to be shared out shamed everybody else into pulling out their hidden picnics and sharing with one another. It's um, and that that was sort of background that I had. So, uh, sound Bible teaching, what's that? I'd never heard, well, I probably had heard, but only by accident. Now, because I had heard was the Bible. In the King James, mostly, but the Bible. I just read, and in fact, the, the first... Bible reading I can remember was it was my mother doing the reading, and she's a she's a teacher. She teaches special needs children. Wonderful, wonderful Christian woman, and she does uh, such good work. I mean, if I if I did what she did, I'd have lost my mind years ago. Mm-hmm. And not just to do with not so much the children, but the um, education management people, people in management. But there's a wonderful work. She's so so caring, but 
very strict. She was divorced um, when she had a child who was about a year old, a younger brother, and two, well, uh, twin twin sons, myself and my, my twin brother. Both both of us are now believers, and we we both, both preach. Incidentally, he he preaches a little church in in uh, Leeds in Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, that, that he's he's out there preaching. I'm I'm preaching, but and she had this situation, and but really gorgeous. She can keep discipline, and you listen to her. She has a, a voice you listen to, and she was reading Isaiah chapter seven. She was reading the call of Isaiah, and I remember her standing on the on the step, chancel step of this medieval church, this thousand-year-old church. That's been changed a lot in the last thousand years. It doesn't look a thousand years old, but this thousand-year-old church reading the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it's this sort of thing that meant that when I came into contact for the first time with the NAR, with this Joel's Army teaching, I thought, that's wrong. That's false. And by the grace of God, I went along to the CU meeting, and we had this... Uh, well, they had another meeting, and because I, I was a churchgoer, I wasn't wasn't converted, but I was a churchgoer, and I I like the church, and I I love the old hymns, I I love the old hymns, always have. Lo, he comes with clouds descending. As to, uh, you 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 put one of these 18th century hymns on, and it's ah oh, marvelous, wonderful, a mighty fortress is our God. Again, marvelous these old old hymns that express the the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and that's how I got. By teaching, mm-hmm. that these things, what you sing, has so much to do with what you believe. Yep. And so I, I went along to this meeting, and they had all these people come up and say, oh, how, "How contemporary, how cool, how wonderful their their churches were." And I'm going, "I don't like contemporary. I've never been cool. I was never cool. Um, not at school. I was uh, out there. They were one of one of the, the weirdos." Uh, on the nerds, geeks, whatever. I was never cool. And wasn't even cool. I remember a school trip and uh, reading. And of course, why are you reading books on the bus? You're reading. Never mind, it's James Bond I'm reading. <laughs> uh, oh, you're reading, what a nerd. I'm reading James Bond here. Well, give me some credit for this. No, it's not cool to read, even if it's James Bond. Even Obviously, the original Ian Fleming. We're not talking about the right, um, right, the so, reboots or anything like that. So you weren't even cool by accident. I wasn't even cool by accident. I wasn't even cool by effort, which is what reading James Bond was partly. Um, <laughs> so it hit all these people. How cool! I think, and then this this young man comes up and he's introducing Upton Baptist Church. He says, we're a bit old-fashioned, traditionally seeing hymns like "Great, sign me up." I'm going there on Sunday. And along I go. It's a Reformed Baptist church, modern building. They've, and the church goes back hundreds of years, but the, they've moved out from the city centre like many had to the, the suburbs. Modern building. And this um, youngish man, I, I suppose he was about my age, the, the age I am now, but youngish man gets up in the pulpit and he's wearing a tweed jacket and glasses and looks a bit like me, really, um, except his hair is curly and lighter than mine. And so I'm thinking, well, the 
which looks like me. That's a good sign. <laughs> and what's he doing? He, he opens the book of Isaiah and reads from it. Isaiah's prophecy. And, and he's reading. And it's, it's just a normal course of things. It's not that he is um, you know, looking out and thinking, well, what can I do to, to try to influence these people? He's, what does, what does the, it's just what does the Bible say? Yeah. And he's preaching about the prophecies against Assyria, the burden, the burden against Moab, and this sort of thing. And it's the Bible. It's the word of God. Mm-hmm. And here is, is this great God who is the God of history. It was the God who is controlling all things. And I'm drinking it in. And, and he's talking about Christ, how Jesus Christ is the, the one who ultimately is the fulfillment of the prophecies of God. How God and he. Galatians, he's preaching on Galatians, and he talks about how when the fullness of the time, the time was fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And he's preaching the law, and the law comes, and he says to me, and I, here I am, a liberal Anglican, I'm brought up, but I, I'm a decent chap, I don't, um, don't smoke, um, I, I don't, don't get riotously drunk, um, I, I've don't fornicate wildly, etc., etc. I even you know, the welcome, welcome pack that the university gave had a, a pack of condoms in it, and I gave it back. I said, "Don't be needing these." Yeah, I don't do that sort of thing. Never did, never have. Not even because I, you know, like I'm unusual in that sense. I'm more like Paul than you know, elder brother type, rather than a younger brother type, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, in the back, in terms of the background, uh, Pharisee, the Pharisees, the Anglican of the Anglicans. And so it's this, and the law comes, the law says, well, look, as I'm, I'm listening to this, this man, Martin Grubb, his name, preaching the law. He was an ex-Anglican minister, by the way. He left the C of E over you know, liberalism, really. Mm-hmm. And he's preaching the law, and the law is coming, and the law is saying, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And all this this righteousness, all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags as Isaiah, and I'm feeling it. I'm going, yeah. I'm not righteous. I can't come to God. I can't come to God. Who, who can who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in His holy place? He who has pure hands and a clean heart. But Lord, what am I? How can I? A, a beautiful hymn, one of my favourite hymns, is Eternal Light, Eternal Light, how pure the soul must be. And it is this marvellous, marvellous hymn. It's by a man called Thomas Binney. He had some odd ideas, Thomas Binney, but his, this hymn is just, just so glorious. Eternal Light, Eternal Light, how pure the soul must be. When placed within thy searching sight, it shrinks not but with calm delight can live and look on thee. The spirits that surround thy throne may bear the burning bliss, but that is surely theirs alone, since they have never, never known a fallen world like this. Oh, how shall I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated being? There is a way for man to rise. This is the marvellous thing. There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode. An offering and a sacrifice 
a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. These, these prepare us for the sight of holiness above. The sons of ignorance and night can dwell in the eternal light through the eternal love. Isn't that marvellous? Isn't that wonderful? And it reminded me of that, it reminds me of that, passage I heard my mother read all those years ago that I remember so vividly Isaiah in the temple in the year that King Uzziah died I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple above it stood seraphim each one of six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew they're so holy and yet they cover their faces and their feet and one cried to another and said holy 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 is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory, and the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. God hasn't spoken yet, it's just his angels speaking, and it shakes the house. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's not the cry of a man who's given himself over to immorality and wickedness. That's the cry of a man who is holy, as as one has put it, holy almost as God is holy. And he feels how great that almost is. That almost is a great gulf fixed to use the the King James language, language I'm familiar with because I grew up with. A great gulf fixed between God's holiness between holy as God is holy and almost as holy as God is holy. That almost ruins souls. Almost is so enormous that the prophet feels himself completely undone. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. Coal from the altar, the place of sacrifice, yeah. offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God. That's what saves, and that's what the Bible brings. Yeah. And here you have this this man, and he's not a great orator, not a great wordsmith, a true humble man of God, not a great orator anyway. Um, but he just, just preached the Bible. And the first thing, the law comes, wham, I'm guilty, I'm lost, I'm help, I can't do anything. And then it was a week, a couple of months perhaps later, in the, and I, I decided to go back to the CU meeting. You know, friends of mine who were in the CU had said, well, you come along. Uh, um, oh, it was a, a young lady who was in the, the drama club with me. Um and it went along to the meeting, and and I I can't remember what. Well, firstly, the, the preacher was a, diff, a different man, totally different man, a, a man with a, a solid biblical background. He was just preached the Bible, but I, I can't remember what he was talking about. But um, we we sang one of the better um, modern songs. I mean, I'm no great fan of the modern songs now, but he's one that was about the cross. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, I look upon the cross where you died, and and it was at that point that that something sort of clicked. That's how 
you get that's how you get right with God. Yeah. That's how I'm right with God is because Christ has died upon the cross in my place. Now, I, I knew that in, in, in one sense, in the sense I'd heard it again and again. I was brought up, as I said, in this prayer book church. My mother insisted we must have the Book of Common Prayer. And I'm I'm very grateful for that, because whatever the minister said, we got the gospel in the the prayer book communion serve, there's this wonderful section that's called the comfortable words. Comfortable words. Hear what comfortable words our Saviour Christ saith unto all that truly turn to him. Come unto me, all that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. This, of course, is not the King James, it's Tyndale. So God loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He also, what St. Paul saith, this is a true saying, and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He also, what St. John saith, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. So I'd heard it, but it, it was that moment, that time when it clicked by the Holy Spirit's work. And how did the Spirit work? Through the Word. Yeah. That's how he works. He brings the Word to people. And so I am, in the, the fullest sense, passionate about the Word of God. And that's why I can have nothing to do in a good way with the Passion Translation, because Whatever the passion in it is for, it's not a passion for truth, it's not a passion for Christ, it's not a passion for the word of God, it's a passion for this unbiblical NAR theology. And I would say that if any readers, if if any listeners, if any of you, you have family members, friends who are talking about this, how wonderful it is, etc., 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 take them aside and say, look, Here are the issues. Here are the problems. God has spoken. God has spoken in Christ Jesus. God has spoken. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. As we come come to a close here, Hebrews 1 and and verse 1. Vital point to remember that... The word of God, the Bible says this, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last times spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, to whom he also made the worlds. He has spoken. We don't need modern day prophets. We don't need modern day apostles. We don't need some person claiming divine inspiration to bring to us the hidden meaning of God's word that has never been spoken before. We need faithful translators, and praise God, there have been many through history. Many, the the King James, Martin Luther in the German, William Morgan in in the Welsh, many translators in all these different languages who have taken the word of God and have said, well, what did God say in 
the original Hebrew and the Greek in those little bits that are in Aramaic. What did God say and how can we best put this into the language that we are writing in? Mm-hmm. Not how can we make it sound more exciting. You can't make it sound more exciting. Nothing's more exciting than the word of God as it is. You can't make it more relevant. Nothing is more relevant than the word of God as it is. We don't need to slot our ideas into it. We need to to be like Martin Luther, like these great translators of the past, captive to the word of God. Let the word of God dwell richly in you, his spoken word. What more can he say, says the hymn writers, what more can he say than to you he has said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. And so we stick with the word. And we should be, as Christians, people of the word, the book. Not people who are running to find the latest. How can we make it sound cool? How can we change it? How can we alter it? No, there's there's no new edition of God's word. There's no authorial revisions. But he has spoken. And so, again, what do you do with people who are influenced by looking at this? Tell them, come and hear the word preached. That's how I became a Christian. I was saved, was coming under the sound of the word. And that word, that word, God's word, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's, It's alive. The spirit works by the word. Listen to the word. Hear the word. God has spoken and God is speaking by his spirit. And how is he speaking by his spirit? So this is where the the charismatics and the NAR go wrong, is that they forget the word. They forget the Bible, that God has spoken and God is speaking. I'll I'll close with a reading a hymn, really. I mean, come to a close after this, but God has spoken by his prophets, spoken his unchanging word, each from age to age proclaiming God the one, the righteous Lord, mid the world's despair and turmoil, one firm anchor holding fast, God is on his throne eternal, he alone the first and last. God has spoken by Christ Jesus, Christ the everlasting Son, Brightness of the Father's glory with the Father ever one, spoken by the word incarnate, God of God, ere time began, light of light, to earth descending, man revealing God to man. And the last verse is really wonderful in the theology. God is speaking by his spirit, speaking to the hearts of men in the age-long word declaring God's own message now as then. Through the rise and fall of nations, one sure faith is standing fast. God abides, his word unchanging. God alone, the first and last. So the Passion Translation isn't really a translation. It's not really the word of God. It's a... a, 
cheap counterfeit huh. and uh, with a lot of really good marketing propaganda behind <laughs> it, but it doesn't live up to its propaganda at all. In fact, this propaganda oh. is quite deceptive. Oh, yes. And the person who puts themselves under the preaching and teaching of those who would you know, attempt to actually sermonize from that text they're not hearing the word of God anymore. They're not hearing God's voice. They're hearing a different voice, a counterfeit voice, a voice that's engaging in deception rather than the voice of God and the one who is the truth and the life. Scripture is very clear. Jesus is very clear that those who worship him must worship him and will worship him in spirit and in truth. Yes. And unfortunately, the Passion Translation gives us neither, and that's the problem with it. Yes, that is the problem. Yeah, Pastor Charmley, thank you for your generous time. You know, today, you know, being so generous and giving us your time to discuss your findings. And um, you know, if if you know of any places that I can point people to as far as further resources and reading on the internet, send me an email, and we will send that along to our listeners as well, so that uh, they can be equipped to warn and uh, and help those who would be tempted to uh, listen to uh, the Passion Translation and foolishly believe that they're actually hearing God's voice in the midst of it when they're not. Yes. Yes. All right. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. So what did you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook facebook.com forward slash pirate christian follow me on twitter my name there at pirate christian till tomorrow may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ by carry his death on the cross for all of your sins amen <laughs>